This is the moment you've all been waiting for. It's time for the Steak for Breakfast podcast. It's Tuesday, January 31st, 2023, and this is the People's Podcast. This is Steak for Breakfast. Smokey, this is not NOM. This is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior, America! Steak for breakfast! So stand by! This episode of the podcast is brought to you, as always, by Man Rubs. Mm. Rubs, barbecue tools, blow torches, t-shirts, coffee cups, and all-around barbecue-related gear for you to make barbecue great again. It can be found at manrubs.com and on Instagram, manrubs. Use the code STEAK15 for 15% off. The Pillow King of Minnesota and the apparatus known as the MyPillow family. I don't know if you heard, Noah. Yesterday, they announced they're dropping the MyPillow version 2.0. Damn! In addition to that, if you're looking for the MyPillow Classics... My Pillow Dog Beds, the Arlandells version 1 and 2, and Giza Dream Everything. When you enter promo code steak at checkout, you're going to get big, big savings. MyPillow.com forward slash steak for anything sleep related. If you're more of a morning person, they've launched My Coffee. It's available in the bean, the bag, and the pod. 25% off when you enter steak here, 50% off when you make it a monthly subscription. MyStore.com forward slash steak. Or you can always talk to a qualified pillow representative, 1 800 658 8045. The top tier of ear gear and the world's most technologically advanced in-studio recording equipment specializing in headphones can only be found at Odyssey. Whether you're gaming, potting, think we got it down this week? Get those ear needs taken care of and done upright. Odyssey.com is the website. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram as well. Friends, don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Stake for Podcast Breakfast. There you'll find a link tree that'll take you to all our social medias, the website, our newest Substack, Telegram channel, and more. On that note, and to everyone joining us today from the Republican High Command, Instagram, Discord, and now via our verified accounts on Getter, Twitter, and True Social. Welcome. Tuesday edition Steak for Breakfast podcast, episode 209. I'm Roan. Noah's here. Yo. Antoinette's out of the office today. She's feeling a little bit under the weather, but we're going to have Alan Jacoby joining us to do the news later. But before we get into any of that, lots of stuff going on. Let's jump right into it. All right. Joining us next on the show today... He's a former deputy assistant to the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump, joining us again. It's been a while, but we're glad to have him back. Mr. Theo Wold, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me back on. Oh, no, it's our pleasure, and uh, welcome back. So we are going to talk uh, about the new investigative committee, the church-style committee that's getting ready to kick off. But before we get into that, let's talk about something that was the uh, lead into our show today, and that is Donald Trump uh, hit the road again as uh, he kicked off his 2024 campaign with dual events in New Hampshire and South Carolina over the weekend. I'm pretty sure you if uh, you didn't watch them all, you, you saw at least the highlights and, and, and pretty much know Donald Trump's ready to uh, get back into the swing of things. What did you think watching his uh, events over the weekend? You know, I I actually, I'm going to take the, uh, the, the minority view here, and I actually really liked... Uh, I liked the events and I liked the approach, right? Uh, because the majority of you seems to be, oh, what? Uh, he can't put together massive rallies anymore. And 
you know, where's the the great showman, the Barnum and Bailey circus uh, type approach? And look, you know, whatever the president does, uh, the mainstream media, the uh, the left, obviously, but the the establishment core of the Republican Party is always going to criticize him. And, and in 2020, it was, well, he didn't have the the soft touch of a retail politician. He did these really large informal events, and uh, he really didn't put the time in to make those solid political connections in the must-win states. And so I, I actually like the idea of him going to a high school gymnasium in New Hampshire. I, I like him you know, showing up at the state capitol building in South Carolina and showcasing some of those early endorsers like you know, the governor of South Carolina uh, and Senator Graham. However anyone may feel about Senator Graham, you know, those kinds of endorsements move votes. And so, look, like I think in this early stage, as much as some people are saying, well, the president isn't showing the dynamism we saw in 2016, he's actually showing the kind of discipline and the nuts and bolts campaigning that uh, candidates for the Republican nomination have gotten credit for for decades. This is the kind of stuff that Reagan did and was so good at in New Hampshire. And, you know, people write books about. But when Donald Trump does it, it's supposedly, you know, oh, he's lo- he's off his game. I, I actually think that's not true at all. I, I like this approach a lot. No, I kind of am in the uh, agreement with you as well. You know, when you talk about uh, rally season, w- which we've come to call it on, on Steak for Breakfast, if you would have, I mean, I don't think Donald Trump would have a problem filling a venue regardless of whether or not that's how he wanted to kick off his campaign. But when you talk about there's still like close to, you know, 670 days left before people go to the ballot box in the 2024 election, it kind of like has, the, it, it opens the door to lose its drawing power and uh, how it connects with the American people. If you start off at like the nth degree of what, you know, a presidential campaign would look like rather than kind of reestablishing, reintroducing and and getting a little intimate with the uh, grassroots level, uh, showing people what like your state delegations are going to look like and such, you know, there was the RNC committee meeting in New Hampshire and then it was the state delegation, which included House representatives, senators, and the governor there as well. And I mean, we, we did see a little bit more intimate Trump, you know, very close to the audience and the speaking events, but then going out and, and doing like a presidential type, uh, you know, news thing with, with the press on his plane, which is something we haven't seen since he was the president. Um, also, we saw him go out and, and, you know, grab a bite to eat afterwards and, and you know, sign some hats and uh, take pictures with constituents, which it looked like a lot of people there were, were excited to see him. So I kind of do like this slow rollout. It also, you know, will confirm a lot of the people who are going to be intricate to his campaign, uh, I think, moving forward. You did mention Lindsey Graham, you know, I had a video saved. I was circulating around our social medias over the weekend. There was a lot of people forget shortly after January 6th, there was a uh, interview that Lindsey Graham sat down with uh, Axios for on HBO. And they talked about his, the dynamic of his relationship. You know, they both started out pretty much at ends calling each other like fools and, and, you know, like cheap tricks. And then they kind of developed some kind of a relationship. I think a lot of it was established on the golf course throughout the course of president Trump's presidency. I think he liked hanging out with Lindsey Graham. Like he's a, cool friend to have. And then after January 6th, you saw, I don't know, north of 95% of everybody, whether it be like extended family, all of his former co-workers and, and, you know, people who had supported him throughout the course of his presidency, just kind of abandoned him. And Lindsey Graham was probably one of the most, not our favorite, but prominent figures to come out and said like, this guy is my friend. I'm not just going to like abandon him because of what happened on that day. And, uh, you know, it, 
I think loyalty means a lot more than other things to Donald Trump. They might not always lead to the to the best decisions or outcomes, but the fact of the matter is is that he shows that to the American people, and I think that's where probably in cases like this, plus Lindsey Graham is pretty popular in South Carolina. I think he gets a pass on it. Yeah, I I, I wouldn't argue with that analysis at all. I, I think you're right, Lindsey Graham. Uh, despite you know to the consternation of a lot of uh, national populists, is extremely popular in South Carolina. And also, as you noted, like the the emphasis on loyalty there. I mean, the president was betrayed by a lot of people, a lot of people that, you know, he picked from obscurity who are now openly contemplating about, uh, you know, running against him or uh, helping campaigns that that will be running against him. I I think on on the nature of the rollout as well, the the one thing I want to note for your listeners is the difference between 16 and 20 was that the president had substantive policy ideas in 16 like the media can can you know essentially shortchange them and say oh they were just like glib sayings you know build the wall but they they were actual promises of what a trump presidency would look like and there were folks inside the white house whose sole mission in 19 and going into the cycle in 20 was to prevent uh as some as some of them would say it prevent another Steve Bannon from showing up with a whiteboard of all the promises we will make. So there was a, there was a conscious effort by some people to eliminate the ability of the president to run on a substantive uh, articulation of what a second term would look like. So this slow rollout of different ideas, you know, like the one that he had the other day that's getting a lot of traction is this, um, you know, uh, allowing voters to elect the principals of, of, uh, of schools. I mean, it's, it's a super novel concept. Um, it takes the Democrats usual turf. More democracy is always a good thing right from underneath them. Uh, it breaks the teachers unions. And this is the kind of stuff that Trump was rolling out on a daily basis in 16. And so when you're weighing like, Oh, where's the enthusiasm? Where's the energy this time around? Well, just remember the speech in 16 started on an escalator and it was followed by a lot of really solid policy recommendations and a substantive idea of what the Trump presidency would look like. That didn't happen in 2020. You had rallies, but it was like, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. And I, I think that was a recipe for uh, not maybe not failure, but it was a recipe that was that was going to exhaust itself eventually where people would say like, well, you know what? But I, I want details. What, what are you actually going to do in a second term? And I like that that's where the president is going right now at this early phase of the campaign. Yeah, and when you, when you combine that with the fact that over the course of the holiday season, he released over a half dozen policy-driven videos, which you know highlight something that was from the previous Trump administration, where the current state of the nation is right now, and what you know his angle is on working towards a solution. And, and it kind of leaves it open-ended. Like This is like the uh, catchphrase that we want to use in regards to combating this issue, which is affecting the country right now. And over the course of the next two years, as he kind of adds to the war cabinet and uh, people who would be potential cabinet members and stuff like that, you know, come to the forefront. We're, we're going to see how those policies will be driven home in hopefully a second Trump administration. So, Theo, I do want to touch on you with this. We've been talking about it, uh, texting back and forth over the course of the last week or so. So we're getting ready to get started with the uh, investigative committee coming out of the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, they have the majority in the House right now. We already or we'll be sitting down with, with Congressman today, Max Miller of Ohio 7, Eli Crane, uh, one of the 20, and then eventually the 6 from Arizona 2, and, and probably touching on this a little bit more. 
But we are going to be seeing the uh, weaponization of the federal government committee, a church-style committee for our listenership who uh, might be more historically inclined to know it as that or how it's been teased in the media, which is going to be chaired by Jim Jordan. And, and you're going to have other representatives like Tom Massey, who, who seems like he wants to get to, to the bottom of a lot of things regarding the federal government. But the weaponization of the DOJ and the FBI is for surely one of them. We know this is something that's piquing your interest, and there's a lot of angles that we've been playing here on Steak for Breakfast. When this kind of first started, well, let's just talk about the Joe Biden document scandal and how this could maybe factor into it. So we saw, looked like maybe the deep state, the administrative state was coming for Joe Biden as kind of like making him a lame duck candidate moving into the 2024 presidential election cycle. Then we see a lot of connectivity tissue to this whole scandal and all the business dealings that Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, maybe Joe Biden's brother, et cetera, had throughout the course of uh, his career in politics, especially the latter end, the last couple of years as senator and then two terms as vice president. When talking about Joe Biden, and now you're starting to see it as, as maybe even a, like a collaborative effort for, you know, um, the administrative state to kind of weaken the way we look at how we handle classified material in regards to like maybe every couple of years a committee decides on who could declassify stuff or maybe we just want to take the wind out of the sails of uh, the president with the anticipation or perspective of Donald Trump maybe occupying the White House again in 2025. So just outside looking in and, and kind of introducing this whole thing to our listenership, which we're going to be talking to in depth about the first time right now with you on, what do you think about is getting ready to launch with this and where do you see it going? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. So um, I, I think the, the, the sort of table setting for, for your listeners is look, I think it's really healthy. It's good to be very skeptical of congressional oversight investigations um, you know, we were promised all kinds of things for the Benghazi hearings, and it turned out essentially, and I mean, I think this is an arguable point, whether it, it was a dud, um, you know, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a strong argument to be made that the Benghazi hearings, though they didn't lead to any direct action in the moment, they did wound Hillary Clinton in a, in a serious way going into the 2016 campaign. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's good to be skeptical of these things because, look, uh, our side isn't great. At, at handling a media narrative, um, and partly because you know it, we're not going to get the same uh, wall-to-wall coverage and and prime you know news time like the January sixth committee got. Uh, the news networks, the cable networks, are all going. They went to the mattresses for the January sixth committee, and they are already closing ranks and saying, you know, this has nothing to do with Senator Church's committee back in the seventies. Um, this is just Republicans looking to score, you know, political points, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, I, and I think the third point would be it's really easy for Republican members of the House to get lost on just the vast problem that the deep state uh, that it is. Um, and so, you know, I think there are the 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 positive signs already are um, there are some really good members who were added to this to this committee. You name Massey. Um, Chip Roy, Dan Bishop, they've all been talking about, you know, they're calling it the weaponization of the federal government, select committee on the weaponization of the federal government. I mean, it's essentially the deep state. So yeah. those guys have all been clued into this issue for a while. Um, Daryl Issa uh, has a has a really strong background in, in conducting oversight. Uh, he was a good addition as well. Um, I think where, where it should go, I, I liked the news this morning that they are already talking to the leadership of the National Archives. Um, that's low-hanging fruit. That, and, and that gets to sort of the, the Biden uh, document scandal and, and what's quickly sort of proliferating as just a classified material scandal. Um, I, I think 
that shouldn't be the sole fake focus uh, uh, of the um, uh, of the here of the committee, but it should certainly be uh, one of the issues they address right away and move on to the bigger targets. And the bigger targets are, you know, the ATF, um, which has been promulgating almost surreptitiously a whole body of law to essentially uh, make you know law-abiding gun owners in America felons. Um, they should focus on the FBI, uh, DOJ. And then they should start teasing out some of these particular cases involving the political prisoners uh, from January 6th. And I, I would really like them to look at the, the Proud, Boy, uh, Proud Boys investigation. What, what sources and methods did the FBI use? What reliance was there on anonymous sourcing? And as you said, uh, increasingly, we kind of see in skeletal form how all these pieces move, you know, the reliance on foreign intelligence agencies to drum up case files that's then filtered or laundered into our domestic intelligence services, which then gives a hook for the surveillance of American citizens, which then leads to investigations, which with a compliant DOJ and FBI leads to indictments, prosecutions, plea deals, and then people spin around and lead to convictions for other American citizens. I, I think breaking that chain or at least uncovering some of it to show exactly how corrupt these institutions have become and how politicized they have become, that their sole focus is on uh, you know, ferreting out and oppressing viewpoints that they find distasteful, namely conservatives and national populists. Um, that should be the sole focus of the committee. And, and I think like we always think that these committees are going to somehow like lead to like the aha moment where the deep state says, oh, yeah, you got us. You're, you're, yeah, you're right. Yeah, we've been doing that or will produce the single piece of legislation that will be the, the game changer in the last battle, uh, the decisive victory for our side. That expectation, no, they're, they're never going to meet that. But if there is uh, you know, an opportunity to bring forward whistleblowers that will help uh, discredit and humiliate some of these institutions, the more, the more uh, disfigured they become in the American mind, the better off we will be in, in the long term because these institutions shouldn't be their, their legacy institutions that may have served a purpose or had value decades ago. Uh, and now post 9-11 with the tools they have to surveil, to investigate American citizens, they're deeply dangerous to the privacy and the freedom of, of every American. Yeah, because, you know, when, when you just look at it from the outside looking in, I, I think like we're so far into the Biden administration now we're into year three of, of you know, four years of a full term. By the time this thing gains any traction and maybe starts producing like long term result receipts, we might not see any of these like different ways we'll start looking or, or different ways these uh, federal agencies will start, you know, working uh, until like the next administration. So like you said, where we could be going for that aha moment. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, these are something that they might look at a totally new way of operation, which might negatively affect, like, let's just say if a Republican, uh, you know, president were to win the 2024 presidential election. And, you know, we could be looking to uh, get to the bottom of stuff that's like going on with the way that the uh, DOJ, the FBI and, and other agencies, you mentioned the ATF, I think the National Archives is a huge component of this as well, uh, especially lately. And, and and then, you know, by the time everything starts getting implemented, well, we're going to be having more transparency. We're going to be seeing, you know, them work differently. And then it, all of a sudden it's negatively affecting the next person who's in there, which, you know, potentially could be a Republican president. So I just want to remind our listenership too, you know, things that came out of the first uh, church investigation, I mean, look at this, the sandwich that is the cookies of that. You had the JFK assassination 
section here, sometime in the middle of that, you had the, the whole church committee, and then you had the, you know, Richard Nixon win re-election as like, what was it, the most popular vote margin in the history of, of Republican presidents, and then within a year, he's out on his ass. So when, when you go after these agencies, especially these deep-rooted ones, you talk about the administrative state, the deep state, and how these unelected officials have so much control over what goes on in our country, even over like the, the highest powers in the land. You have the leader of the Senate, the Speaker of the House, and then the President, who, you know, if they really wanted to go after them, they could make them extremely vulnerable and, and equally powerless. Uh, we are expecting some kickback from this when, when they start pulling back the, the curtain and seeing what's really going behind the scenes here. Do you think we could run into a situation like that where maybe it could possibly backfire? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think um, the possibility of backfire is is enormous, but we, we have to remember that when the intelligence services essentially declared war on, on Donald Trump and the yep. Trump presidency, um, it ground everything to a halt. And, and Trump has essentially been fighting off a sustained attack, the raid on Mar-a-Lago, um, you know, the accusations, I mean, you know, beginning with Russiagate, all the way through the Ukrainian scandals, the leaked phone calls with foreign diplomats and heads of state uh, to the raid in Mar-a-Lago, all of that is the deep state waging war against someone who dared to ask questions and challenge the idea that unlimited surveillance power of American citizens was a good thing. So uh, my view on this is um, the battle is going to come no matter what. And especially if you have a president uh, in 2025, uh, assuming you know if a Republican can win a national uh, national election again, um, if you have a president like Donald Trump, who's going to ask the hard questions and is going to break some of the orthodoxies, uh, you know, the Iraq war was not a good thing. Right. Um, uh, the intelligence provided by the intelligence services was not accurate. Uh, anyone who's going to challenge some of those orthodoxies, you're going to get the war with the deep state just because. So um, backlash is, is enormously possible. Uh, but in the meantime, we're living in this world where they hold all the cards anyway. So if, if it's done right and it's executed well, the good, the, the best possible trajectory for this committee is they start to flip over some of the stones and then you have, uh, you have a president like uh, Donald Trump who comes in in January of 2025 and starts lopping off the heads of the snakes that, that are, that were hiding out underneath those stones. No, that seems to be the the plan, and, and moving forward, we we would hope that it would go in that direction. Now, Theo, th- as this committee's getting ready to kick kicked off, as as it starts to develop, and and you know they've all been pretty honest about it. Jim Jordan and Thomas Massey, uh, Dan Bishop as well, has got on you know with the mainstream media out in the legacy media, and they've said like, listen, there are a lot of components of this investigation that this committee is going to be doing that's going to be top secret. When we see stuff. That's really in violation of things that affect American citizens. We will do our best to declassify it. But he's like, you're probably going to get a lot of information in broad strokes of what we're looking into, you know, broad strokes of where investigations are going to be going. But but as that continues to develop, we're going to be looking to have you back. We can kind of uh, armchair quarterback it as it goes along. Maybe talk about the things that positively are going in the right directions and maybe some of the things that uh, our listenership and us here on the show would like to see doing as well. For anyone that's not following you on social media, we're going to live link it in the show description today and. Uh, why don't you tell our listenership where they could find you? Yeah, awesome. Uh, I'm at, at Real Theo Wold on Twitter and on Instagram. And uh, I'm also following this this story pretty closely. As you noted, National Archives is a big target. Absolutely. Um, and I and I think we, we got some. some. I'm not going to put too much faith in, in, in Congress, but we got some good news 
on that score today. So at Real Theo Wold, and uh, it'd be great to be back on the show to sort of quarterback this as it goes along. Well, we'll see. We'll get you back in here as uh, soon as possible because we know our listenership really gives some positive feedback when you're jumping in the show with us. This is a former senior assistant to the president, Mr. Theo Wold. Thanks for joining us on Steak for Breakfast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. You know how you've gotten that chewy, hard, disappointing jerky from the gas station? you got to try some of this jerky we just got from Farmer Bill's. It's soft and tender because it's cured and air-dried instead of dehydrated, like that other junk. Ingredient conscious, there's no sugar, no soy, or other additives, just beef, salt, and spices. Working on those gains, it's protein on the go with a very respectable 32 grams of protein per 2 ounces. That's twice the amount of that other jerky. So if you'd like to support small business and you like your food source in the USA, order some Farmer Bills with the code STEAK for an extra 5 bucks off. Buy a 12-pack, you can get free shipping. The only thing better than this tender jerky is supporting an American-made company that shares your values. Get yourself some Farmer Bills traditionally air-dried beef jerky today. But we will root out the deep state and stop the weaponization of federal agencies because there's a weaponization like nobody's ever seen. We will use every tool at our disposal, we'll give to Steve, to defend election integrity, and we will dismantle the illegal censorship regime and bring back free speech to America. And as they say in New Hampshire, live free or die. That's pretty good, right? Live free or die. This guy's going to be in world, remember Crooked Hillary? He's going to cause a war in his first week in office because they think that's my personality type. It's actually the opposite. My personality kept us out of war. And I told you before, it would have never happened with Russia, would have never gone in, Putin would have never, ever gone in. And even now, I could solve that in 24 hours. It's so horrible what happened. I mean, those cities are demolished now. The people, I'll bet you have millions. It could be millions of people. How can you, you know, they bomb a city to the ground. These big buildings come tumbling down. They say two people were injured. Not two people. They lie. I mean, they lie. But if I were president, you would have zero chance that that war would have happened. But I think of the United States every day is April Fool's Day. And they said, sir, what do you mean by that? I don't like the sound of that. I said, listen to this. And I just gave him a couple of ideas. We have open borders when they should be closed. It's April Fool's Day. We have prisoners, people from, as we just said, mental institutions and terrorists being dumped into our country when they should not be accepted. April Fool's Day, right? Who would do that? Who would do this? Who would allow prisoners in? He goes, Biden. He said, Brandon. You're both right. 2024 election is our one shot to save our country, and we need a leader who is ready to do that on day one. We need a fighter who can stand up to the left, who can stand up to the swamp, stand up to the media, stand up to the deep state. Am I allowed to say stand up to the rhinos too? I think we can say that. I think we can say that. Stand up to the globalists and China and stand up for America. And that's what we do. Uh, when I announce, I just want to put my cards on the table. Like, you know, we're playing that very big game right now. The biggest game of all, because it involves the country and the survival of the United States of America. But when I, uh, when I put the cards on, and then I said, all right, let's go. They said, he's not campaigning. This is like about a month ago when I announced. Well, I said, you know, I got two years. 
They said he's not doing rallies. He's not campaigning. Maybe he's lost that step. Uh, we didn't. I'm more angry now, and I'm more committed now than I ever was. Because that was good. Sitting down with uh, former assistant to the president, Theo Wold, and this is Steak for Breakfast. Thanks everybody for joining us. If you're a longtime listener, welcome back. And if you're joining us for the first time today. Welcome to the show. Follow us across all social medias at Steak for Breakfast or Steak for Breakfast Podcast. Also, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify as well. Uh, good lead-in right there. We're sitting down with Theo. It's been a while since we talked to him, and uh, you know we got into the start of the church committee, but we also touched on Donald Trump uh, relaunching his campaign and uh, bid to reclaim the White House in 2024. We, we heard a little bit... In the opening there from the 45th president as a, I don't know, what would you guys call it? More of a soft launch? Diet launch? <laughs> yeah, it's on the softer side. But launch zero? Yeah, and it's like we alluded to uh, early on uh, when we were talking with Theo just a minute ago that to go into two years before you head to the ballot box at peak rally season uh, probably would kind of, you know, I guess... There's no other way to say it. Blow your load before you need to. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump seems to be strategically mapping out his course. And, and of course, we'll see rallies. People mentioned it to him, and he made commentary on it up from the podium. You know, we missed the rallies, inactivity. But he did talk about, uh, you know, he's been there. He, he's kind of mapping out everything that he's getting ready to do. And uh, with the weekend now behind us, he's officially hitting the road again. So, in addition to, you know, some of his hot takes, we also heard some more policy-driven things, and I think that's going to be something that we'll see him doing. It's not going to be suggestive policies as it was the first time he ran for president, you know, like Theo said, build the wall and things of that nature. We're going to see bringing back Trump-era border policies, which made the border the safest it's ever been in decades. He touched on that while still in New Hampshire. Uh, let's hear him talk about the U.S. southern border. In hours of my inauguration, we will restore every border security measure of the Trump presidency. We had it so good to quickly achieve the most secure border in U.S. history again, just as we had two years ago. And I'll ask Congress to establish criminal penalties for any future administration that releases millions and millions of, <laughs> of people that you don't want in our country. And I don't say that as a bad person. I mean, I have a bigger heart than anybody. But we don't want their prisoners, and we don't want people that are living in mental institutions, and we don't want terrorists in our country. We don't want it. We're going to be paying a price for a long time. We have to get them out. We have to get them out. They poisoned our country. The people who launched this invasion, because it really is an invasion, we believe those people belong in jail. Something has to happen. You know, when they say conservative or liberal or Democrat or Republican or independent, it's really what people have common sense. It's not even conservative. It's people. It's just common sense. You want to have borders. You want to have voter ID. And those are the things that we are going to want to see in which would be another Trump presidency. I think, you know, when it comes to issues with him, I, I think the uh, chess he plays geopolitically with some of the biggest world leaders, Xi Jinping, uh, Vladimir Putin and such 
In addition to that, the economy, he wants to restore the greatest economy in the history of economies, uh, which was the U.S. economy at some point, you know, throughout the course of his presidency, get back to energy dependence on ourselves and, and not other countries while, you know, not selling all of our strategic petroleum to geopolitical adversaries and, and the U.S. southern border, which was one of the centerpieces of what he campaigned on originally and actually made happen throughout the course of his first presidency. So what did you guys think, uh, you know, hearing Donald Trump for the first time officially in uh, a couple months before the holidays getting, uh, you know, the show back on the road? Oh, I was saying earlier, I, I think he's definitely going to stay a little bit more on the rails coming up, which, you know, is less entertaining, but probably better just for optics you know the the more off the off the cuff he goes sometimes the more angers the uh the other team yeah he needs to stay policy you know policy driven on what he wants to do like i love the board of security obviously we need it again and i'm hoping that he will hold people accountable for literally facilitating breaking federal immigration laws, because that is ultimately what the Biden regime has done over the past two years, has facilitated crime in, in so many different ways. And yeah, the economy, you know, what what cracks me up about, you just mentioned, Ron, about the strategic uh, petroleum reserves is, you know, you have these paid operatives on Twitter, which I'm, I'm finding more and more now paid by the by the left that are on there. Uh, for instance, this morning, it was something this guy, uh, he doesn't even deserve the the notoriety, but he basically said the next time you're at the pump, remember this, every single House Republican just voted to block President Biden from selling oil to lower your gas prices. And it's <laughs> such a lie that you're selling strategic petroleum reserves. You're not we're not producing any more oil to sell. It, it's a lie. And and they're they're going to keep pushing this and obviously blame it on you know Donald Trump more how he wants to make uh, uh, America energy independent again and all of this. And that's all going to be spun by the left as bad. And I think we're going to see amazing rallies and just the small event that he stopped at a local burger joint and interacted with those people. You know, it wasn't a huge, huge thing, but it was big enough to see where average American people uh, see him and we're happy to see him and prayed with him and, and spoke to him and how he is, you know, genuinely uh, interested in what the American people want because of the love for his country. So I, I think we're going to see great things. And like Noah just said, you know, don't go off rails, President Trump, and, and, and bring us to where we need. This is the guy who was supposed to bring us into World War Three, according to the left. <laughs> and look what's happening now. And hopefully this is the man. That's going to prevent us from um, uh, going into World War Three if we're not already into World War Three by the time the 2025 inauguration comes. Well, when you talk about uh, holding these people accountable and potentially jail time for the people that are breaking immigration law and federal law and stuff like that, I like the way that sounds, and I would wish that it would happen more than probably almost anything at this point. But yes. I feel like there's got to be some sort of parachute for these people that keep them from from fearing that like you know <laughs> Saki being able to 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 dodge being subpoenaed and all the other stuff like there's you know whether it's going to be like a presidential pardon like hey this guy's pardoned for being a total giant piece of shit and ruining yeah. the country but you know here he is i i just i i don't see it happening i want it to happen in a perfect world it would happen i just don't see it happening i'm right there with you yeah i think uh when we get into the uh investigation 
committees that are that are going to get kicked off, notably February 6th, the border one. I mean, uh, former acting ICE director under the Trump administration, Tom Holman, pointed out that there are receipts of, of people like uh, Joe Biden and Alejandro Mayorkas talking about or had worked under different policies. I mean, he even re- referenced Alejandro Mayorkas working back in the Obama administration when they built the uh, cages for kids and did family separations, how Mayorkas came out and said that this plan was working. And the biggest thing that was working about it was when people were illegally crossing the border, they were getting detained, they were getting processed, and they were getting put back on a plane. So all the other people who were getting ready to come up, see their their friends or, or, or other, you know, residents in villages and cities where they lived getting off the plane saying like, hey, it's not worth it. Don't sell everything and leave. He said that's part of the reason, one of the big deterrents uh, that, that we're not seeing within this, uh, you know, current regime. We, we saw just over the weekend new numbers came out. Uh, it was collaborative effort over the last couple of months from DHS and ICE that showed almost 1,100 uh, criminal aliens, ones who are either under investigation for crimes in the United States or had already been convicted and removed were just released back into the United States. So, Hmm. yeah, that's going to make everything better. Is that on top of the fourteen or 1,500 that were released like a a couple months ago? We were talking about it here on Steak for Breakfast not too long ago about how they released fourteen or 1,500 convicted aliens, or is that that the same number we're talking about? No, that's the next bump, the newest ones that have just come out. (laughs) Oh, good, more bumps. Yeah. (laughs) So more bumps, more bumps. We did talk about on the show last week how— Although Cages for Kids sounds like some weird nonprofit— Dude, one eight seven seven cars for kids. We gotta make up a song, cages for kids. That has to happen. Uh, build your cage today. There you go. <laughs> one of the things that you guys both touched on was was a little bit more uh, possibly presidential or reserved nature of uh, of Donald Trump as he gets ready to you know fully hit the campaign trail here. That whole narrative went out the window shortly after the New Hampshire event and before the South Carolina one, as Donald Trump allowed some of the press pool to join him on Trump Force One, his uh, private 757 jet as they flew from New Hampshire to South Carolina. He took questions from the press pool, notably one that I want to play right now is uh, in an exchange with CNN, who called it an exclusive when talking about other possible candidates who are looking to get into the race for the White House in 2024. Let's hear it. So Ron would have not been governor if it wasn't for me, and that's okay. Uh, and uh, he, number one, he wouldn't have gotten the nomination. And number two, he wouldn't have beaten uh, the de- his Democrat opponent. So then when I hear he might run, you know, I consider that very disloyal, but it's not about loyalty. But to me it is. It's always about loyalty. But for a lot of people, it's not about loyalty. Are you surprised to see him openly criticizing DeSantis this early? What do you think? No, I'm not surprised. If you think back on the 16 primary, uh, he was taking shots at everybody in the race, even people who were at zero and one percent. In the case of DeSantis, uh, there are a lot of polls where DeSantis is ahead of Donald Trump, including in key early states. So I'm not surprised. I expect him to come after DeSantis pretty hard. You know, Trump's the only person officially in the race right now, but it sure looks like DeSantis is going to run. And if you look at the whole field, uh, the Florida governor looks like the one who might have the reservoir of support among all corners of the party to actually beat Donald Trump in a primary. I I unequivocally disagree with that statement. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, Donald Trump would allude in that interview as well that Ron DeSantis and some of the moves he's made lately regarding some of the steps that he took during COVID. uh, He claimed that the current Florida governor is rewriting uh, history about the pandemic response that he did down in Florida, which... We've talked about it multiple times on the show. The the whole Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, COVID narrative is kind of a push as far as I'm concerned. I don't know how you guys feel. They both locked down. They both promoted vaccines. And they both kind of have like 
alternate uh, takes on it right now. Ron DeSantis is looking to investigate while Donald Trump is saying that it saved millions of lives. But here's the fact of the matter. Something I pointed out on social media the other day uh, is that when it comes to all the bad stuff with COVID, all of the side effects, obviously the astronomical number of deaths that have happened since the, uh, you know, implementation of, of, of forcing the jab to do things like go to restaurants and the gyms during the pandemic all the way up to now where you have to be fully maybe vaccinated and booster just to continue to work in, in some private business entities. I don't think there's a journalist out there, especially when it comes to like the grand debate stage of the presidential primary season that are going to say like, Okay, Mr. Trump and Mr. DeSantis, let's talk about uh, COVID vaccine deaths and myocarditis and the death jab and all. Like, they're never going to get asked that question. That's more of a question that's, you know, going to be prevalent on Twitter and places like Telegram, but not really in in the middle of the news cycle as the mainstream media, who is almost totally sponsored by Pfizer, continues to push this stuff as completely safe and legitimate. Sponsored by Pfizer. There you go. So... You know, it's, it's one of those things where I, I think it's a push issue for them, and then I, I don't really know what the what the deciding issues are going to be that they start to split on. I mean, when you just look at Ron DeSantis' rise to fame, regardless of what happened in this election, which was totally him and himself uh, in, in, you know, the midterms that just passed his, his re-election for governor, his rise to popularity had a lot to do with the, the bump that Donald Trump gave him and how Ron DeSantis identified with the America First movement. But when you start peeling the layers back, it doesn't really look like he's always been that kind of guy. Like his his house voting record is most notable for, for you know, yes votes on things like commemorative coins and post offices. Uh, and, and, and as governor, you know, I don't like to say it, but one of his nicknames outside of the state of Florida is Red Flag Ron. And I know that definitely it does not identify well with Noah, of all people, who uh, is against right. red flag laws. No, oh, yeah, I don't like that. I don't think anybody does. But, no. but you know, it, it's one of those things where uh, where we've seen the Ron the sanctimonious comment at a rally during the midterm election season and a couple pointed true social posts. This was the first actual real commentary that he's got. And it's one of the things that we've always pointed out. Although it may be to a fault, loyalty means everything with Donald Trump, and, and you can't deny that. So he would make the trip down from New Hampshire to South Carolina, and uh, he talked about how there's only one president who's ever challenged the entire establishment in Washington, and it has to do with a lot of the legal reasons he's dealing with right now. Everybody from the National Archives and the FBI and the DOJ to state attorney generals all over the country just seem to be suing him for how he calls people out on things, uh, lies that they make up and accusations of things that Donald Trump did or did not do. We saw the narrative fail at the national level with the two failed impeachment trials, but those lawsuits and things of that nature continue to, uh, you know, be a thorn in, in the former president's side to this day. Let's hear him talk about challenging the uh, Washington establishment. The president who has ever challenged the entire establishment in Washington and with your vote next year, we will do it again and I will do it again. This will not be my campaign. This is going to be our campaign. I just left New Hampshire and the the relationship we have with that group of incredible patriots is unbelievable. Thousands and thousands of people coming from just a plane to the site waving American flags, so proud of our country and so discouraged by what's happened. Together, we will complete the unfinished business of making America great again. You know, when they hit MAGA, oh, MAGA, MAGA, MAGA. That means make America great again. We're trying to explain that to a couple of Democrats. They don't quite get it. 
And they still don't to this day. We know Joe Biden, that's one of his go-tos, MAGA Republicans, and then talks about, you know, democracy on the ballot forever and ending all the... I don't think he realizes that a lot of people think that that is a good thing. Yeah. Like, having democracy on the ballot? Or like, hold on a second. Hold on a second. These are Republicans who want to make America great. That's terrible. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? No, you know it's bad when they have to take the MAGA Asshole. hat and in a... I forgot where, where it was, what court... Where the court actually had to rule that the MAGA hat was free speech, make America great again hat, because they were, of course, the left, it's, you know, oh, they're the, trying the to ban KKK it. hood, yeah. apparently. Oh, gosh. Imagine that. Right. Well, we, I mean, you know, the way they try to demonize everything, we obviously saw that, that tragic incident that happened not too long ago with the uh, five, and I'm air quoting now, police officers and the guy that they uh. attempted to detain, which led to his untimely death after a gang style beating. Uh, but the but the fact of the matter is, there were six people involved. All six of them, believe it or not, were African American, and they have tabbed that as contributing factors. White supremacy. White supremacy led to that eventual death of a African American man by five African American men. I want somebody to explain that to me. We can't. Some of the other well, things people are looking for the answers for, and, and a lot of people are having a hard time explaining. We, we've outlined it pretty good on the show. Was uh, some of the guest lineup? I mean, you, you saw uh, House Representative Russell Fry, the current Governor uh, McMaster, but U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham. I know Alan's a huge fan of him. The real Maybe. life, the real life Mr. Garrison, <laughs> <laughs> neocon warmonger. You name it. In regards to America First and Lindsey Graham kind of never is into it. He he loves endless wars. He loves the military-industrial complex. He likes interfering in uh, other countries' elections. He might be a CIA asset, but the fact of the matter is, if there's one thing that he's done after their brief scuffle back in 2015, it's been loyal to President Trump overtly and to the media. And I guess you could say been one of his better friends in regards to ones that he made along the way, especially after January 6th, Lindsey Graham was quick to take to president Trump's defense and, and, you know, claim his friendship and alliance to him. And, and whether or not it, it only transpires into ballots at the box for Lindsey Graham in his reelection campaigns or what the, their, the friendship and the dynamic of it has remained strong throughout the course of president Trump's involvement in politics Lindsey Graham took to the stage to reaffirm that and other things regarding making America great again. Let's hear him. Well, he did it once. He can do it again. And now why we're here. So, Mr. President, I started my political career right there and I got my first paycheck and I said, I got to get out of here to the state house people. You're not doing it for the money. There's one thing I want to talk to you about. How many, how many times have you heard we like Trump? Uh, policies, but we want somebody new. There are no Trump policies without Donald Trump. I was there. And that's a pretty good point that he brings up, and I think also a uh, maybe a closet shot at, at Governor Ron DeSantis as well, who, who a lot of people on, on social medias and in the mainstream legacy media are making up like, Oh, we don't want the problems. We don't want the mean tweets. We want someone who, who will do Donald Trump's policies without Donald Trump. And when you look at you know, the House voting record and, and a lot of the things in Florida that, that Ron DeSantis has pushed there. We also like to remind our listenership, he has turned that into a 100% mail-in ballot state with also the digital uh, voter roll system there, which is was awesome for his re-election campaign. But as, you know, uh, current Trump attorney and great friend of the show, Christina Bob has pointed out on numerous occasions, 
that is not going to change when the governor changes. If a popular Democrat comes into the state of Florida and starts to gain a little traction and winds up getting, you know, in, into the governor's house, that same system that allowed Ron DeSantis to have historical wins in the state this past midterm election cycle can be used for the Democrats to use in their favor. So, you know, the fact of the matter is there are a lot of clear defining principles between the both of them, uh, especially policy driven ones. And Lindsey Graham was just another person who recently has decided to uh, point them out. What, what do you, what do you guys think about the real life, Mr. Garrison? I mean, <laughs> we know there's only so oh. much you could take. Yeah. You could take them for, but uh, the fact of the matter, loyalty, means a lot these days. And, and when it comes to Donald Trump, there's been so many people, everyone from social media influencers who built million plus followings that have just abandoned him for other more possibly attractive to them candidates, all the way down to politicians who may have endorsed him in his first and even second race. And now are just saying like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wait to see what the, you know, it's going to be a big Republican primary. We all know it's not going to be, there's going to be a half dozen people probably at the most of real candidates in this presidential prim primary. You know, you got Pompeo, you got Pence, you got Bolton, you got Nikki Haley, probably one or two others, but we're not going to see much more outside of the scope of that who are legitimate contenders and in regards to the totality of notable names. But the fact of the matter is people who have really stuck by his side, that group is uh, extremely small when you look at it on, a, on a total demographic of, of politics inside the Beltway. So what do you guys think? Loyalty means something? I mean, I would hope so. We'll yeah. see. I, I think I think there's a, <clears throat> a stark, there's a difference between being a, a an absolute loyalist uh, and being an opportunist. And I just listened to Lindsey Graham speak and I, listening to him speak previously knowing what he said about Donald Trump, knowing about his relationship with Joe Biden, that he loves to talk about how they travel the world. Sure. I see Lindsey Graham as a fake opportunist mm -hmm. because whether it's fundraising and votes and other reasons, I truly believe he despises Donald Trump, but he's he's tying his wagon to the Trump train because he knows um he knows it's the right decision, but not because he's loyal to Donald Trump. He sees opportunity and uh, the and the base. I, I, I can't I can't believe anything that comes out of Lady G's mouth. Just watching him hesitate about the Trump policy. There's no Trump policy without Donald Trump and all that. It, it's not none of what comes out of his mouth is, is is genuine to me. And I'm all about loyalty. And there is there are heavy-duty Trump loyalists out there. And like you said, Roan, about people that have amassed unbelievable followings, which eventually turn into unbelievable amounts of money because of Donald Trump. And now they're turning into, you know, DeSanta bros and, and, and other things um, for, for no real reason. And then you have real loyalists who are taking a complete beating on social media. I don't know if you pay attention to Laura Loomis' Twitter feed at all, but like, she she is pointing out things about Ron DeSantis and she's team Trump and she's getting smashed on Twitter every day for it. Uh, and, and there's just, yeah, you have your loyalists out there and I don't mean loyalists to one man. I like the Donald Trump policies. I like the movement and that's why I'm loyal to team Trump. I'm not loyal to the man, Donald Trump, but I'm loyal to his, his uh, agenda, I guess you could say, because it's, I think it's the agenda that's going to, Again, because it's already proven to save America and make it great again, and and hopefully that agenda will uh, will do it again. But yeah, Lindsey Graham is garbage. Yeah. So if so, if something happened and and Trump drastically changed 
it doesn't it doesn't change anything with what his movement is. Right. So let's say he just goes completely off the rails and does some shit that we just don't agree with, and it's like, all right, well, somebody else will take up the mantle for what his his basic movement is. Yeah, he's kind of laid the groundwork, which we hope. But you know, the nationalist populist movement is, is essentially what. What, what MAGA is, things that came from, uh, you know, started in the Tea Party and, and kind of went down a little bit, then then got reborn with, you know, the candidacy of Donald Trump and, uh, you know, it is where it's at now. I, I, I Alan, I kind of agree with you. No, I agree with you as well in regards to, you know, Lindsey Graham. I think he's a major political opportunist. Uh, you know, I think their relationship, friendship-wise, is, is when talked about, it, it is probably stuff that happens on the golf course. I think they probably just talk shit about tons of people because, like you said, Lindsey Graham being an opportunist, he probably has a lot of receipts on people and just craps on them when he's with Donald Trump. Probably makes for, you know, a good uh, it's round. probably hilarious. Yeah, round of 18, but... At the end of the day, I think a, a lot of uh, what's going on right now is kind of laying the logistical field work for the ground game that's going to be 2024, and, and part of that was having representatives from the House with Russell Fry, the governor, and then Lindsey Graham there showing that you have a pretty tight bond between the state and federal apparatus. Mm. That's set up there as far as uh, ground game goes and money-making goes. And, and listen, if some of these people still continue to use Donald Trump for something, maybe at least in this election moving forward, which will be his last candidacy probably for the White House, uh, especially if he's successful, obviously, it is something that uh, – you know, maybe he needs to start using people himself. And uh, if, if that's part of, like, the secret game plan there, if he continues to put his war cabinet together, then so be it. But in a, in a less enthusiastic and a little bit different way because of the low-key element of events, Donald Trump closed out his uh, busy day on Saturday with a little bit of the outro. Let's hear it. So we'll just conclude by saying I very much appreciate it. I respect these people so much, these people so much, and the state so much. And uh, God bless you. We need the blessings from God. Our country's in big, big trouble. God bless you all, and we'll turn it around, and we'll turn it around fast. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. A little bit different than the outros at the uh, Save America rally circuit that we've been so accustomed to, but so was the intimate nature of these speaking events, which were to smaller crowds, which were a little bit more policy driven and kind of outlined where he's going broadly to maybe fine tailor those down over the course of the next two years, as like we've you know already talked about on the show. Uh, people who are going to be potential cabinet picks or appointees are going to start to come into focus. We obviously know when it's all things related to the border, Tom Holman is, is definitely interested in getting on. Uh, you know, one of the things that we won't see in a future Trump administration, and probably not in regards to Senate candidacy as either, talking about, uh, you know, some congressman as we're getting ready to sit down now with Eli Crane, a uh, member of the 20 who got down to the 6 and is now in Congress representing Arizona too. I don't know if you guys saw this over the weekend, but uh, it's been officially announced. We've known it on the show since before the holiday season, but it's now, you know, official. Adam Laxalt is a, he's now the personal attorney for Ron DeSantis. Oh. Pretty weird, huh? I mean, they're, they're, they're buddies going back to, I believe, their their military service or, or college days and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, I think we were the first show 
out of any of the shows who said, uh, as Ron DeSantis continues to make it apparent that he is probably going to get into this presidential race, whether he wants to or not, because now we're hearing that a lot of people are pressuring him and he's kind of like 50-50 on it, but the amount of money that's been dumped in his war chest, it's like he almost kind of has to, that Adam Laxalt and uh, former gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin would be joining his team uh, as part of his war cabinet. And uh, one of those moves was made official over the weekend. So uh, I saw a Politico article about it. They were kind of vague, but I went and asked some of people that we talk to on a frequent basis, and they were all pretty much able to confirm that, you know, Adam Laxalt is now the Alina Habba or Christina Bob of Ron DeSantis' team. Huh. Yeah, pretty weird, huh? Where, where are they going with that? It's well, expected. Possibly jumping in the ring. Ooh. So, yeah, I mean, uh, and then, you know, the same article, which came out from Politico, w- would tease how that announcement would come sometime late May, early June. So we'll obviously continue to be tracking that as well. But one thing we're going to be tracking, well, in the next few seconds is jumping in with... Uh, one of our favorite congressmen who was a frequent guest on the show throughout the midterm election cycle. Next on the show, he's a congressman representing Arizona's 2nd District. Representative Eli Crane, thanks for jumping back on Steak for Breakfast. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Sir, it's our pleasure. How's everything going for you, getting accustomed to uh, your new digs up there on Capitol Hill? What's the latest? Um, you know, it's been an interesting uh, entrance into Congress for me, uh, but it's been a good one. Uh, we're just starting to meet with our committees. And so, you know, the learning curve is steep. I continue to, you know, uh, try and get uh, try and get situated up here, but uh, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, and we're happy that you're out there representing Arizona 2nd District. Now, before we get into the committee work, which is definitely something I want to touch on, uh, I just want to get some, like, outgoing commentary on that whole you know, process that went through in, in the, the speakership vote. How, how was that? I mean, was that what you expected heading up to Capitol Hill for the first time following orientation and, and when you guys were about to get started? And how much better do you think the process is going to be moving forward now that, you know, the, the House of Representatives kind of went through their growing pains? It seems like they're out of the starting blocks, pretty ready to go to work for the American people now uh, as we're getting ready to hit February. Yeah, I definitely didn't expect that right off the bat without even being sworn in. But, um, you know, it, it it turned out to be, I think, a blessing for me in many ways. Um, one, I got surrounded, you know, um, joined, the, you know, started working on uh, becoming a member of Freedom Caucus, which I think is where I wanted to be. Yeah. Um, and it's also, you know, where my constituents are for the most part. So that's, you know, that's a good fit there. And uh like I said, it, I think it turned out to be a blessing not only for me, but for the conference and uh, for the American people, because that's really the job of the Freedom Caucus is to continue to push this conference in a more conservative um, America first direction. No, that's the truth right there. And, you know, for anyone who who is just a recent Steak for Breakfast listener, if you didn't have the opportunity to hear uh, Congressman Crane over the course of the uh, midterm election season where he made several appearances on the show and kind of laid out all the things he wanted to do as part of his platform to get to work for the American people. There wasn't a misstep in uh, whatever happened following Election Day and when he was finally sworn in. So uh, at least on the show right here, Congressman, we're extremely appreciative for all the hard work that you've already done uh, for the American people. But we're looking forward to some of the stuff that you're going to be doing moving forward. So let's talk about some of the committees that you're going to be joining. You want to let our listenership know what parts you're going to be on? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm going to be on uh, Homeland Security, Small Business and Veterans Affairs, which uh, for me, that's that's fantastic. They're all right up my alley. And, you know, there was definitely a, a concern going into that 
that speaker fight that um, there would be, you know, retribution. And, uh, you know, we knew that that was definitely a possible outcome that we might not. Matter of fact, we were told by members of the conference that if uh, if we didn't vote for Kevin McCarthy, we wouldn't be seated on any committee. So, um, you know, I'm I'm pretty, uh, pretty excited about the uh, assignments that I got. And uh, I I think we're going to get some good work done. Now, let's just say, uh, in regards to uh, some of the committees that you're going to be on, let's say Homeland Security, what are what are some of the things you're looking to accomplish in this uh, first year as the session's getting ready to kick off and, and committee work's about to start? Well, we're going to do everything we can to, uh, you know, protect the homeland, and that starts on the border. And, uh, you know, I'm a representative from Arizona, so uh, I see it all the time. My constituents see it all the time. It definitely affects our lives. Uh, you know, it affects the safety of our kids, um, in so many different ways. And, and so, you know, that, that's going to be, you know, that's going to be primary, um, for many of us on the uh, Homeland Security Committee, but then there's also, you know, um, a lot of other things that go into uh, that committee and protecting infrastructure. You know, I just met with some folks, uh, that, uh, work in my district, um, in the energy sector. And that was one of the conversations we had talking about, um, you know, getting up to speed on, you know, how I can help them make sure that uh, our energy infrastructure uh, remains secure and is, uh, you know, resilient and able to withstand, you know, outside attempts for corruption. And so, you know, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of bad actors out there that would love to uh, uh, destroy the United States of America in, in many, many different ways. And Homeland Security takes a look at all of those. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be there. It's it's a good committee for me, and I think we've got some solid folks on it. Yeah, we we agree, and uh, you know it, it's interesting. You, you bring up the border. Obviously, Arizona is one of the biggest flashpoints for the border crisis right now, and we're just ahead of the kicking off of the February sixth border investigation to see what really is the actual root causes of the problems down there, and hopefully, we'll be coming with this new Republican House majority uh, to some comprehensive solutions moving forward. Um, we saw over the course of the last couple of days. Especially yesterday, the the Biden administration released some uh, statement talking about uh, keeping the COVID public health emergency uh, guidelines up through May. We know that there's been a big fight in the House to end those and and strip those down from a lot of things like, you know, in regards to uh, stuff with the military and the vaccination status and stuff like that and other federal agencies. What what can you say on on the White House's take on this and and where do you think this goes now, uh, you know, as, as the White House seems to be taking a stand to extend it a little bit further? Well, I can honestly tell you, it doesn't surprise me. I think that uh, this administration, uh, you know, basically takes the exact opposite position on what's best for the American people every single time, whether you're talking about whether or not we should continue the COVID emergency, you know, shore up the border, use our own energy, et cetera, et cetera. And so it doesn't really surprise me, but I I am glad to be a part of a conference that's, uh, you know, actually working towards uh, reversing and uh, you know really combating a lot of the these foolish uh, America last policies that this administration uh, continues to be so dependent on pushing and so yeah it's uh it's gonna be it's gonna be a good it's gonna be a good two years I think and uh, I think we're gonna get a lot done. Yeah, last thing, Congressman, and, and speaking about getting stuff done, you guys have until June to figure out a, a solution for the uh, debt ceiling debate, which is getting ready to get kicked off here, as Speaker McCarthy said, to meet with President Joe Biden uh, in a very short period of time. 
eventually, and, and regardless of your committee work or, or what caucus you're in, the debt ceiling debate is something that's going to get kicked back and probably debated on the entire House floor and include all of the members. What are some of the ways you're looking at this heading into, uh, you know, how much we've spent and, and how large the national debt is and, and what the uh, Republican majority in the House needs to do to hold the line to make sure we just can, can at least slow down the reckless spending that the Biden administration has, uh, you know, been doing for the last couple of years and get a solution for this debt ceiling debate? Well, this is going to I think this is going to be the next big one, fellas. I think, you know, it. I think everybody in the country knows it. Um, there's obviously some much different dynamics in this one. How much leverage do we have? Um, what can we re- realistically get accomplished? But at the end of the day, um, I think that, you know, the, the group that you guys saw, um, you know, um, stand up in the speaker fight, it, we're already in uh, meetings talking about um, how, how we can continue to get the best deal for the American people and push this conference in the most conservative um, direction that we can. You guys, you guys see it. You hear it all the time. Everybody's a fiscal conservative until it's time to be a fiscal conservative. That's how this town works. Um, it's very unfortunate. Everything's transactional, and uh, I'm hopeful that we can get a really good deal, you know, for this conference. But more importantly, for the American people, because the the, the spending that goes on up here is just absolutely ridiculous. We all know it, and unfortunately, it doesn't seem like there's ever an appetite to change anything in this town until it's forced. And I think that that that's, you know, again, why the freedom caucus was created, but I'm hopeful because I hear a lot of other members of our conference, you know, talk about, um, you know, wanting to be strong on this in, in this debt ceiling fight and really, you know, be fiscally conservative and kind of rein, rein this government back in. And I'm hoping that that actually is the reality in the case when it actually gets time, you know, to, um, you know, hold the line and we'll see what that's going to look like. Uh, but we are already having, you know, multiple meetings a week on, you know, what we think we can get accomplished. And once again, there are members in this conference that will go to bat for the American people, even if it means putting their own political careers in jeopardy. Uh, it's something that at, at some point, you know, based off of what a lot of people have campaigned on or, or rhetoric that's been, you know, tossed around the media, you're going to have to do. We've already seen you physically produce those receipts. And then you saw Speaker McCarthy go around this weekend. Uh, you know, he did a lot of the morning news shows on Sunday, and he actually continued to echo uh, basically what you're saying now just out of the gates right here and, and how he's come to the defense of not only the House rules and committee assignments, but what the new Republican uh, House majority agenda is going to be. You think he's done a fairly good job? I absolutely, absolutely do. I'll go toe to toe with whoever I have to go to to get the best results for the American people. I'll call balls and strikes, but I'll also give you an attaboy when I think you deserve it. And I think, you know, uh, the speaker is doing a great job right now. And, uh, you know, I really hope that continues. And if it doesn't, uh, again, you have members that are willing to hold them accountable and hold you know the rest of our leadership accountable as well. And so I'm hoping and this was one of the things that you know Representative Chip Roy and others said in in the beginning, we wanted to get our fighting done before the conference, you know, before this Congress even kicked off. I'm, I think we did that. I'm hoping we did that, but if we have to um, you know, if we have to go back to the drawing board again, we will. No, it's it's something that uh you know, we all know and we've all seen and we're kind of in agreement with you. He, You know, 
regardless of how critical anyone's been with Speaker McCarthy in the past for how he's been just out of the gate here and based off of, you know, kind of through his candidacy and, and where he's gone in addressing the media, making committee assignments and, and what the agenda seems to be for the American people, we're going to have to give him an attaboy on steak for breakfast as well. Congressman, we're going to live link your congressional website in the show description. Hey, you want to tell any of our listenership that's not already following you where they could find you on social media? Eli, uh, CEO is uh, the social media. Perfect. And we'll be looking to have you back at some point soon. It's been a long time, Congressman. And we were uh, pleased that you had some time in your busy schedule to sit down with us and and let our listenership get to know you and and all the things you're looking to do today. This is the U.S. House Representative who's representing Arizona, too. Eli Crane, thanks for joining us on Steak for Breakfast. Hey, thanks, guys. Take care. Lindell received four votes. Harmeet Dillon received 51 votes. And Ronna McDaniel received 111 votes. So I'm pleased to announce Ronna McDaniel has been elected chairman of the Republican National Committee, and the gavel is yours. Congratulations. Well, that was happening as our show was ending on Friday. We were able to announce who the winner was, but uh, we're going to briefly touch on this because it's something that, you know, we, we've actually had a lot of guests on the show, and we covered this extensively. We sat down with Harmeet Dillon uh, two or three times throughout the course of, of her candidacy since it was announced, and uh, were turned down by Ronna McDaniel, who won re-election by a considerable margin. I believe it was 111 to 51 to 4 for Mike Lindell, and then somebody nominated Lee Zeldin. Uh, that came in hard on the hopium train with a total of one vote. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, it's a lot of... Um, well, I, I, speaking of Lee Zeldin, he called it. Uh, he went across all the legacy medias, and, and when people were throwing his name out there, someone who was a potential candidate to challenge Ronna McDaniel for the RNC chair, he said, listen, I made some calls. The election's pre-baked. Doesn't matter what I do, how attractive I am, what changes I want to bring. There are people that we, you know, we've talked to or, you know, uh, have, you know, probed on, on where you're looking in regards to uh, Ronna's reelection or, or looking in a different direction. He called it pre-bake. So mm. that's exactly what it was. Uh, you know, listen, for as many times as we talked about it and as for little as we're going to touch on it today as we're getting ready to put this in the rear view because Ronna McDaniel is going to be the RNC chairwoman for the next election cycle, which she's announced is going to be her last again. Uh, but, you know. We have years to nominate people who are best fit for where we are in regards to managing the national committee and the chair. If we continue to wait like we do in the midterm elections, in the general election cycles, and in races like this for reactionary nominations like Harmeet Dillon came out of the midterms. Oh, the midterms was a huge failure. I'm throwing my name in the ring. Mm-hmm. Like three weeks before Thanksgiving, everything's shut down for the holiday seasons. You pick it up in January, and, you know, two and a half weeks after New Year's, you're having the vote for the next chair. All you could legitimately do is go on legacy media shows every night and talk about it. Does nothing to change the delegates. Does nothing to whip the base. And go on podcasts like ours. And what happens is results like this. If we wait to the last minute to nominate somebody and then all we do is attack for, you know, weeks over the course of the holiday season when most people politically are just checked out in general, uh, this is what the result's going to be. So, I mean, honestly, Ronald McDaniel did say this was going to be her, her last go around. And the fact of the matter is we should already be looking into nominations for who's going to be the next RNC chair now, like within the next couple months and have that person kind of congruently run along the RNC through the next election cycle, either 
working with them or pointing out things that they need to improve on or aren't doing. Because like we heard from Tyler Boyer and he was on the show as the, uh, you know, RNC committee man for Arizona. Like he's like, dude, I go with my list of things and they're like doing that. Like get out of here. Like, <laughs> we, we don't care. And, and Harmeet Dillon alluded to the fact that, you know, a lot of the delegates don't care either. What did you guys think uh, about Rana's election? We, I mean, in an angle, but we knew from the beginning where it was going. I, yeah, I wasn't surprised. Uh, You know, it'd be nice if some, some change happened, but I mean, did anybody actually think? The delegates are controlled by the donors. The donors are deciding who's going to be the RNC chairman. And that's how it'll be the next time around. Even there are even some delegates that have made comments. We don't don't care what people want. We care what the donors want, Mm -hmm. the big Donors. The only times the donors don't get a say is when the donors are the American taxpayers giving money to Ukraine. <laughs> right. Don't donate to WinRed. <laughs> <laughs> don't donate to WinRed. And, and this just solidifies everything that I always say on every show I'm on. My show is you never, ever, ever donate to the RNC, the NRCC. Never, ever, ever, ever. I don't care who the chairman is. I don't care if Mike Lindell won. I still wouldn't donate. I still wouldn't donate to the RNC. I want my money to go to individual candidates not the committee, because then it could just be sent to anybody, possibly someone, most likely someone I am not in support of. So, nope. I wish more people would uh, pull their monthly donations that they have uh, coming out of their bank account automatically and wake up and start donating to real candidates and not just some organization that's going to do whatever they want with the money. Yeah, and for a lot of people who are feeling, you know, disenfranchised or had the wind taken out of their sails from Ronald McDaniel winning re-election, number one, we told you so. Number two, Lee Zeldin told you so. Number three, please heed our words. This is the time to start opening up those, you know, uh, exploratory committees into who would be a better fit for the RNC moving forward. And uh, we, we should not wait till the outcome of the 2024 election to decide, oh, yeah, we ne- definitely need to move in a real election now because then, all I mean, vendors, consultants, and donors, like Alan alluded to, control the RNC right now. It's a problem that needs to be fixed, but it's not going to get fixed in one election cycle. We saw the reelected RNC chairwoman uh, sidebar with the press shortly thereafter. Let's hear a brief clip from her. Well, I, I felt like I had strong support from the committee because they really want to keep the consistency of the things we've done, voter registration, election integrity, and they know it's such a pivotal time heading into a president, presidential election, so they wanted to keep that, but they understand we're going to bring change in too. In your statement that was put out right after the victory is secured, you said you look forward to working with Harmeet in the two years ahead. How do you think that will happen? Well, we're going to reach out. Obviously, it's it's after an election, but I'm going to call her, Mike Lindell, try and bring everybody together. Oh. My whole campaign for this election has been unity. We need all of us. We need addition, not subtraction. And we can't fight each other so much that we rec- don't recognize that we've got to beat the Democrats. She forgot math so is that's racist. What I'm I'm going to do as leader of this party, I'm going to reach out to both of them. Oh. Is there an added role for her? Reach out to Carrie Lake. We haven't discussed Ooh. anything like that. Harmeet in her comments to reporters. Um, touted her grassroots support and she said that the party at its own peril uh, if it doesn't listen to the grassroots 
what do you is your response? Well, I think the grassroots uh, has been fed some misinformation um, from her campaign, and we're going to reach out to them. I'm going to go on a grassroots tour. I would love for her to come with me. I want other leaders in our party to get, come with me, but they don't under, always understand what the RNC does, and that's our job to go out. But we love the grassroots. We appreciate them. We need them to go knock doors and be poll watchers, and I'm going to be traveling the country, getting them ready for beating the Democrats, because we can only do that united. And she also mentioned in her comments uh, that we can't, the RNC cannot have a perpetual chair. Uh, is this your last term? This is my last term as chair. I'm saying it on Fox News. It's done. Uh, this is my last term. I know how hard it is to ramp up with a new chair. I wanted to keep that consistency. We've made a lot of changes in my tenure with voter registration, minority outreach. The things that we've done have been historic. We need to continue that into that ne this next election. And then I'm happily going to pass the gavel to somebody else. Mm. <laughs> How do you think that uh, f first face to face between her and Harmeet <laughs> Dillon's going to go? Hey, I heard you were talking shit. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> Fuck. She wants to do a grassroots campaign now that she's in the chair. Well, okay. that's the thing, too. I mean, one of the things that a lot of people who kind of know what we need to do adjustment wise to win elections said a lot of the biggest things in some of our biggest battleground states, namely Herschel Walker's campaign, Adam Laxalt's campaign in uh, Nevada, and, you know, the Blake Masters campaign in Arizona, they all decided to go on disconnected small group bus tours over the course of the last couple weeks of, of their elections when a lot of the people said, in, besides doing that and going on, you know, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, and Laura Ingram every night, throw all that out. And go and do town halls with people where you can get hundreds, if not thousands, of people to come out to, you know, uh, figuratively touch you, hear the issues, ask questions in the crowd, and, and have, like, the candidates face-to-face. -face. You know, th those are the more important things uh, because you're, you're whipping the actual voters, not driving in between, you know, Arby's <laughs> on, on the bus tour. I have a – right now I'm going to say it on Steak for Breakfast right here. I have a nomination for RNC chair Neck what is it, four years, right? Get ready with the garrison button. Four years? No, I, I listen. It's, no, it's, it's it's after every after every election. Right, it's after one person. It, it's it's for one person that I see traveling the country, boots on the ground, heart in it, heart nowhere else from what I see. And I'm going to say Scott Pressler. I would. I, he is somebody who should either be working in a high position in the RNC. I could see him one day being chairman of the RNC, and I'd like to see it. That's just me. He's a young guy. He's a fighter. He's definitely out there doing the Lord's work when it comes to, like, the absolute worst parts of what it means to uh, voter registration, like you said, Alan, like literally setting up at gas stations and supermarkets yeah. and, and having people see if they want to, like, switch their parties or if they're not registered, registered to vote in elections. And uh, I, I do feel like his inclusion into the, uh, you know, RNC leadership, uh, hopefully now will be a little bit more inclusive for him. And uh, moving forward, like like I said, he's a young guy, but but get to know as he tours these states, some of the statewide representatives and uh, maybe even some of the delegates who see that the way that he's doing things is something that they should be uh, for surely weaponizing within the RNC, especially since we're you know over a decade behind in the way we we do elections for Republicans compared to what the Democrats are doing right now. I do want to play a clip from Harmeet Dillon. She spoke to the press shortly after the vote and uh, kind of have an outro from her on this topic. Somebody say to a member earlier, a member say to a commentator earlier today, I don't give a damn what those voters or those small donors think because they're not voting here today. 
believe me, I do give a damn, and so did the people who supported me in that room. And by the way, so did some who didn't support me. But the secret ballot allows folks to be able to say, you know, what what is what is convenient. And that's that's by design. So that's fine. People went in there, and I showed, I'm sure in their hearts they did what they thought was best for the party. I think we're going to hear a lot about it over the next few like I already said, that mm. first phone call between those two is going to be a little bit more than interesting. I, I do want to point out uh, kind of like a side note. Listen, when you talk about these two girls here, uh, Ron McDaniel and Harmie Dillon, do they not have like the two smallest sets of lips that you've ever seen on a human being? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, how much plastic surgery has each? I mean, Rona, right? She's got she, her face is plastic. I oh, I don't know. Ask Laura Ingram. Ooh. Oh, the Botox queen. Didn't she block you on Twitter? Uh, yes, she did. <laughs> she did. Well, who hasn't? That's true. <laughs> Patriot Takes hasn't yet. They keep tagging us and stuff. Alan, too, is also a notorious Patriot Take. He gets at least one post a month of him either promoting George Santos or something crazy that they decide <laughs> to highlight. They didn't like my uh, Avengers of Midity War. No. <laughs> I like when they tag you me. just start your own Patriot Stakes. <laughs> yeah. No, there you go. That's a good one. That is a good one. So I do want to, as we're getting ready to uh, bounce out here and jump in with uh, U.S. House Representative Max Miller, who's going to be talking about, you know, a bunch of different things regarding his committee work and stuff. Uh, the, the connectivity between the RNC and, and how we're going to be moving, you know, forward in elections. I saw Ronald McDaniel following this weekend on Sunday, sat down with Varney to talk about, um, you know, some of the things that she's looking forward to uh, get going here and, and heading to 2024, including working with Donald Trump. Let's hear him. That's what I intend to do. Would you publicly say that Donald Trump bears any responsibility for the some of the losses in the midterm elections? Would you say that publicly? You know, I don't like this. I don't like these parceling out because he supported Ted Budd, who won, and he supported J.D. Vance, who won. Yep. I think there's a lot of things. That's why I've put together an after-action report. We've got to look at Dobbs. But here's the one thing that I think people should be talking about the amount of ticket splitting the amount of republicans that went out and voted for a republican at the top of the ticket look at arizona the top vote getter is a republican look at uh, georgia we had eight of nine statewide races won by republicans but why are republicans going and voting for one republican and not the other trump. we have to work hard to bring is, those independents that, in. that but that means you turnout was not the, issue. the answer is trump isn't it I'm saying I'm not into the blame game right now. I think we've got to do an analysis. I think it's too quick. And I think you can't parcel out, well, this endorsement helped this one and this. It's the whole message. It's what did each candidate do? What was their turnout? But most importantly, why, how do we get independents to re support Republicans? Okay. And how do we get Republicans to support other Republicans? And this infighting within our party is never going to help that. We need Trump voters. We need McCain voters. We need Romney voters. And then some if we're going to beat the Democrats. Okay. Rana, an admirable defense of your position. And thanks for being with us today. We'll see you thanks again for soon. having me, Stuart. Sure thing, Rana. I wonder if Donald Trump hasn't, you know, if the Trump team hadn't announced that he's going to be making his return to all of the legacy social medias where <laughs> her answer have been different. Right. Because it's easy to just, like, you know, have Donald Trump crap on her on Truth Social. But, you know, he did congratulate her and he did not nominate or support a horse in that race either, both figuratively and literally speaking. Mm. But, you know, it seems like... Uh, one of my biggest knocks on Ronald McDaniel, and there are a lot of things to knock her on, was that I don't feel like she's ever overtly supported Donald Trump as the candidate who's representing the party in the general election. Uh, it was it was like she was just getting her footing and kind of like 2016 was like a massive wave. And then she got the RNC chair. 
uh, woman ship. And, and now, as, as we're getting ready to head into 2024, it seems like she's going to kind of stay on the sidelines in regards to blaming Donald Trump because she's not sure how fast he's going to be able to get the nomination regarding on who else gets into the race and stuff moving on. But as, as we're getting ready to close, you know, this segment and uh, actually this narrative, like we'll, we'll be talking about the RNC more moving forward and, and it'll probably be a whole bunch of, I told you so is because we, we, like I said, we've had years to, to nominate somebody and we're stuck with Ronald McDaniel again, but you know, we, we do have to look at doing things differently moving forward. And it's so important for our listeners to be, involved at the local level, poll workers, poll observers, getting people registered to vote. And, 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 you know, we can solve a lot of those problems that she talked about ticket splitting, voting for like straight Republican and then one random Democrat or, or like a lot of people did and reported out of Georgia. They just leave Herschel Walker's name blank, yes. you know, because they thought he was an unattractive candidate based off of a lot of stuff that happened in, in, in the media throughout the course of the primary season. And then, you know, they kind of tried to delegitimize him as a, they, they went through after he won the nomination. So we're, we're really going to have to do things better. Uh, we're going to have to be more on point. The, the path to 270 is not a broad national one. It comes down to a couple states. It was like Donald Trump won in 2016 by like 55,000 votes, lost in 2020 by 35,000 votes. And it's probably going to even be a slimmer margin uh, if all things hold up here and he wins the nomination heading into 2024. So we'll keep a track on that, but we're going to switch gears right now and take it back up to Capitol Hill. He's a congressman representing Ohio's 7th District. Coming back for the first time since he's been sworn in. Max Miller, thanks for joining us on Steak for Breakfast. No, thanks for having me again. Love your show, and let's get to it. What do you guys want to talk about? Well, there is a busy slate of items coming across at the congressional level. We did see some of the heaviest hitters, committee chairman and the Speaker of the House, doing the news cycle this weekend ahead of uh, a lot of investigations and inquiries that are getting ready to start up. You want to talk about some of the committees that you're going to be participating in in the uh, newest session of Congress right now? Yeah. Really excited to talk about my committees, but the Prevacid uh, was honored to be the head of the steering committee for our freshman class. So all of our freshmen voted me in to advocate for them in the steering delegation room. And I'm proud to say that we got uh, every one of our freshmen, except for, I believe, two of them, their first or second committee assignment. So I believe we actually broke the record on that. I'm really proud. But I'm sitting on agricultural and science, space and technology. And why that's a beautiful thing is three out of the four counties that I have in Ohio's 7th Congressional District are agricultural counties. And at least for science, space, and technology in Cuyahoga County, which isn't in that county, we have NASA Glen, which is a beautiful fit. So we're going to be able to do a lot when it comes to combating the CCP, both on the SST side and what we're going to be able to do, looking at some of the different things that we may be able to classify as critical infrastructure. Uh, there's been some things thrown around there. I don't want to just say out loud just yet, but could have crossing jurisdiction with Homeland, uh, which would be interesting working with maybe CISA, but we'll see if there's actually something that we can move forward. Because when we look at what the Chinese are doing in terms of how they hack into our software and steal our IP and our IT, all of these things are on our roofs, mm -hmm. right? So if we get a little bit more savvy into how we really draw up these pieces of legislation and how we classify them, well, we could make it a lot more sexier if we classified CISA's critical infrastructure and then right went right after the CCP. I mean, these are some of the things that we're talking about in Congress that are going to have a dramatic effect for the American people and our small and big businesses here uh, within this country on the national security aspect. Because at the end of the day, we have to stop the Chinese from invading the United States of America, whether it's stealing our IP or IT, whether it's buying tens of thousands of acres of farmland that they just want to preserve 
things of that nature. We have to combat them on, especially them being a currency manipulator. And if you give me more time, I'll continue to vomit out and just tell you how bad the CCP is and what great things we're going to do both on the farm bill and on the SST front to make sure they can feel the hurt and to bring America back to where we need to be and where we were just two and a half years ago. Well, that's something that I do want to stay in. Now, when you're talking about just first year agenda, things that you're looking to accomplish, especially for your district when working on these national committees, you're, you're telling our listenership right now that even though agriculture, science, space, and technology are the committees that you're going to be sitting on, a lot of probably the focus, at least on maybe your end, when, when looking into getting some of the stuff done for your district and, and, and rooting out some of the problems that it's you know incurred over the course of the last however long period of time you want to talk about. This has to do with with China's influence in, in the United States and what they're doing in regards to uh, you know interfering with American businesses, buying up American property, and then slowing down parts of the uh, infrastructure of the American supply chain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're very focused on that. But as well, and I, and I want to make sure this isn't Big Brother. This is just common sense things that we need to talk about. But somebody like Bill Gates, right? Bill Gates is an individual who has bought tens of thousands of acreage of farmland throughout our country. Why? What's his intent? What does he plan to do with that farmland? I can tell you what he plans to do with that farmland. He intends to buy up all of this property when he says crazy, ridiculous things like, I'm going to stop cows from farting because methane is bad for the climate. Yeah. This is literally a joke, but this man believes it to be true buys up all this farmland, we need to have some protections in place for the American people who want to buy farmland and actually use it to provide food because food security is national security. It's that simple. So when you have someone like Bill Gates, who has bought all of these thousands of acreages of farmland, I would love to talk to him and find out what the intent is, right? If you're buying the land just because you don't want to hurt the climate, then you shouldn't be able, in my opinion, to own that land. Now, I don't want it to come across as big brother, but what I'm expressing is you know, you're literally buying something so other people can't have it. I know it's nice to have money. And I think it's great that he's a billionaire, but that land is used for other reasons. And that is vital to the national security of this country. And so we need to look into not only the CCP, but crooks like Bill Gates in terms of what they're doing in our own country. That's also setting us back. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to see how he's worked over the last you know, especially a couple of years with the pandemic and stuff like that. I mean, I know he's been under kind of the microscope in the in the national media recently with some, you know, interesting questions served his way in regards to uh, past dinner guests that that he's been uh, and parties that he's been, uh, you know, a participant in. But the fact of the matter is. When you talk about some of his business dealings in the United States, whether it be in the pharmaceutical community, still doing you know stuff with the technology as he's always been known for, and now all of this uh, kind of intrusion into the agriculture sector, it, it seems like there's some kind of a master plan there, and, and I'm glad that you're sitting on that committee because actually Devin Nunes touted that committee uh, a couple weeks ago when he was on the show, a former congressman, current Truth Social CEO, as one of the most important ones in all of Congress because of how strongly it's tied in uh, certain aspects to all the other committees that are kind of going on, including some of the investigatory ones. So great to see you sitting there. And uh, we look forward to seeing some of your good works. I do want to move along, though. One of the biggest topics that uh, was going across the news cycle this week and, and definitely something that's going to be at the forefront of, of pretty much everything to do, at least with House Republicans, for the next couple of months uh, heading into the summer is the debt ceiling debate. 
Uh, we know Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, and, and President Joe Biden are set to have a meeting this week. But it sounds like, you know, where Kevin McCarthy looks like he's about to hold the line, Joe Biden came out this weekend and made some comments to reporters that seemed like he's going to be equally, if not more, stubborn. What are you expecting as, as something? I mean, this is eventually going to get kicked back down to the to the floor and for the entire House when you're talking about budgetary appropriations and stuff like this. What do we need to do right now to to get this fixed before we could look at a potential government shutdown later this year? Yeah, and that's going to kick off when Speaker McCarthy goes and he meets with President Joe Biden. I mean, that is going to be that's where this negotiation kicks off. And that's going to be our starting point. Now, I can't speak for the conference and where I feel comfortable at right. in terms of their own opinion. I can tell you how I feel would be a pragmatic solution. But to be clear, once again, you know, look, Kevin hasn't met with uh, Biden just yet. So we don't know where we're starting in these negotiations. Of course, Republicans are going to be here and Democrats are going to be here. And at some point, we're going to have to both are going to have to break. Here's the common sense solution uh, that I think should be brought to the table. But I'm going to wait for leadership to see what they devise, because maybe it's a better plan. That being said, right now, the Democrats want us to operate at 5% over what this country needs to operate at. If we lower that down to 2% and just 2% over what this country has to spend and this country needs to live with inside of its means, as every single American tries to do on a daily basis. If we max out our credit cards, that's it. You're not going to be able to use it anymore. Well, what the American people should understand is our credit card has been maxed out for the last several years. The Democrats just spent $5 trillion in the last two years. When you quantify those numbers, it, make, it should make every American sick to their stomach. If we lower it to 2%, we will be lowering our national debt by trillions of dollars over a 10-year period while simultaneously taking care of the United States of America. Because the scariest thing that can happen, besides companies hitting their bottom lines and millions of Americans who won't be able to pay mortgages or car notes, because that's what will happen as, as a result of this, is that it gives us the leeway to find a way forward and a pragmatic solution. Do I want to spend one more dime out of the federal government? Hell no. I don't want to spend a penny, okay? But I understand that if we stick to the fiscal year of 22, and if we hold that line, then the dollar, the United States dollar may no longer be the world's reserve currency. And if that ends up happening, we won't be the United States anymore. We'll be the little brother to Venezuela. And then everyone in this country will be upside down and it'll look like absolute chaos. And it's almost as if martial law will be in effect. These things that we're talking about are very real and they could ramp up that quickly. I'm just trying to sit here as a, as a hardcore conservative where I don't want to move off the starting blocks and spend one more dollar. But at the same point, I can't stomach tens of millions of families being out on the street because we're not being responsible while also lowering our national debt, which I believe is the best way forward of how we can operate instead of defaulting and losing that status of the world's reserve currency. That's how heavy of a situation that this is. And it's going to be a tough negotiation. And to be honest, guys, I don't know where it's going to end up. I'd be happy more so with 1% than two, but we're going to have to meet in the middle somewhere. And that's for leadership and Speaker McCarthy to work out with the Democrats and Biden. No, yeah, the, the credit card thing should be something that the everyday people can understand right now, because if you're anything like just General Joe Schmo on the street, you're having to use your credit card a lot more just to subsist. And anybody that knows when they've gotten their credit card up past a certain a limit or too near near your limit, your your payment for your principal and your interest alone goes up and skyrockets and it becomes an unaffordable amount. So if you look at the government spending where we're at right now, it's like we can't even touch the principal and interest of what we have as debt. 
it's unbelievable. I was in a meeting last week um, and it was a great meeting in Cleveland with a great group of people and Republicans and Democrats. Right. And you had the Democrats who there's a Democrat who brought out this plan saying we need to stick to the five percent and here's how we can lower inflation. And it, it didn't make sense. So you're going to continue to spend more money than what we have right into the economy. But how do you plan on easing inflation? When we talk about all this together, if we hit that one or two percent number, which I believe we should really be at, we'll also ease inflation as a byproduct of that. At, At the end of the day, what I've come to realize is with some individuals on the other side of the aisle, and it's not all of them, while they most of them have warped ideological perspectives, It's that some of them are reasonable and some of them would just love to spend this country into an oblivion because they don't see that 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 money as their own money. If that money was their own money, they wouldn't be writing billion dollar checks to Ukraine. They wouldn't be writing billion dollar checks to bail out people. I mean, this is what they continuously do, but they don't have an actual game plan to move forward while spending 5% to lower inflation while American families are hurting. I mean, the average constituent within our district makes $58,000. And if you're a family of four and you're just the one individual working to support your family, your take-home pay right now is, after taxes and where, where inflation is, is probably thirty-five dollars or $30,000. That is no way that they're going to be able to take out and live their current lifestyle to support their family. And just like you said, they're maxing out their credit cards. They're putting $5,000, $10,000 on their credit cards, looking at it as a loan. And the one thing that the media hates to ignore, or sorry, that they love to ignore, excuse me, as I was, they don't talk about credit card debt. They don't talk about this country is over 115% over our credit card debt this time this year than we were last year. Yep. No one talks about these things. So not only is the United States checkbook and credit card maxed out to an oblivion, so is most of the people and everyday Americans within our country. So it's a huge problem we're going to have to resolve. Yeah, when you're talking about those constituents and what their average uh, annual earnings are, you know the numbers have come out over the course of the last couple of weeks that are showing uh the the average american family is spending 66 nearly 70% of their total income just on food, fuel and shelter right now and whether or not that money is coming from their income based off of their jobs or in, in a lot of cases with blue collar families multiple jobs that they're having right now or whether they're using more of their uh previously established credit which apparently everybody's is going down due to the fact of surging prices everywhere it seems like it's really taking its toll on everyone and uh looks like something that doesn't seem to uh be going away anytime soon yeah a lot of these people are never going to catch up when it comes down to the debt that they've gotten into think about it it's worse than a school loan it's worse than taking out a quarter of a million dollars to go to college why because you're going to put ten thousand dollars in your credit card and as interest rates continue to climb as they're doing every single time the fed meets you're looking at an 18 to 25% APR on that credit card. I mean, that literally will want to make me, I mean, I would just get very uncomfortable and my skin would crawl off my body at mm-hmm. that point because that's going to be horrific. And you're right. They're never going to be, be able to get out of that loan. And they're eventually going to have to file for bankruptcy, which I believe that a lot of Americans are headed towards in about six to eight months from where we are today. Talk about the credit card debt problem. I mean, there it is. How are we going to fa- pay it off? So- Yeah, it is. And it's something that we hope that, you know, at least Congress at the at the debt ceiling level uh, can can get to a solution to at some point before the summer. You know, we we talked to a couple of economists on the show lately who said, you know, government shutdowns are never good. He talked about the reality of regardless of if you work for the government or not, you know, sometimes you don't get paid. Then you go back to work and you get back paid. But he said the optical view from the public is 
especially in this time right now where we're like bouncing in and out of a recession almost on a monthly basis uh, based off the price of everything and what's going on in the world. Uh, it's definitely something that could downtrend jobs and, and you know, continue to lower wages and, and just make everything else miserable for the American people. Congressman, this has been good catching up with you. Uh, it's been too long, to, to be honest with you, but we'll be looking to have you back at some time, uh, maybe later in February, and, and catch up with all the stuff that you're going to be w- starting to work on now here in the next few weeks. For anyone that's not following you, we're going to live link your congressional website today, but uh, any social medias that you want them to check out? Yeah, uh, Miller Max L, or sorry, OH uh, Miller Max on Twitter and votemaxmiller.com. And I appreciate it. And guys, just so you know, hopefully later today, you're going to see something break, and it may happen today that I'm going to be leading the charge on. I'll be very proud and honored. And you'll uh, hopefully see that resolution be brought to the House floor this evening and would love to come back on to talk about it. Has something to do with maybe the removal of uh, someone who's a little anti-Semitic that I take very personally. And Ooh. So should every American. So we could talk about that next time. And we're talking about that later like on the it. show today. We saw a lot of coping and seething this weekend, and we saw a pretty good meme shared by, by President Trump on True Social regarding it as well. This is the congressman uh, representing Ohio's 7th District. Representative Miller, thanks for joining us on Steak for Breakfast. Thank you, gents. You always rock. Friends, I want to take a minute and talk to you about cigars. Whether you're on the golf course, fishing on the lake, or doing some yard work around the house, our friend Alan has got you covered. He's launched the Patriot Cigar Company. The tobacco is hand-picked in the fields of Nicaragua, right next to where Mike Lindell picks his coffee beans. Cigars are hand-rolled each three years. If you enter promo code STEAK here, you're going to get 15% off your total order. Every order over $100, free shipping, and a $10 e-gift card is included with every purchase. MyPatriotCigars.com, that's MyPatriotCigars.com, a premium smoke for freedom-loving patriots. Let me give you another. He says that um, this is part of the uh, of a pattern ahead of the first Trump impeachment. You said the committee had not spoken to a whistleblower. In fact, that turned out not to be true. You know, the Washington Post uh, said so in their in their fact check. Uh, the Washington Post uh, uh, identified that yes, before the person became a whistleblower, they sought advice from the committee. Uh, when I was asked the question, I thought they were referring to whether we had brought the whistleblower in, uh, and I should have been more clear in my answer. Uh, Congressman, you were also removed uh, by Republicans from the Intelligence Committee. What the speaker said about you is that beginning in 2012, a suspected Chinese spy developed ties to you and to your office, even put an intern uh, there, raised campaign funds for you. You say very clearly you cut off ties with this person back in 2015 when you found out you cooperated with the FBI. But the bottom line question is this. Did you put yourself in a vulnerable position? in any way so that this alleged Chinese spy could have benefited or even learn American secrets? Absolutely not. Uh, But, Dana, uh, don't take my word for it. Uh, Take the FBI's word for it. They never talk about ongoing investigations. And and former Chairman Schiff knows this uh, as a member of the Gang of Eight. Three different times they came out and said two things. All I did was help them, and also I was never under any suspicion of wrongdoing said that Israel hypnotized the world. You said Israel is an apartheid regime, that politicians with pro-Israel stances were all about the Benjamins, which you very notably apologized for, uh, that you support the BDS movement, which a lot of people think is rooted in anti-Semitism, compared the U.S. and Israel to Hamas and the Taliban. I want to give you a chance to respond to all of that, which they say is a clear pattern. Yeah, um, 
I might have uh, used words at the time that I didn't understand were trafficking in uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, when that was brought to my attention, I apologized. I owned up to it. That's the kind of person that I am. Uh, and I continue to work with my colleagues and my community uh, to fight against anti-Semitism. Uh, now, I've never compared or made any comparisons. What I was referencing was the case that was in front of the ICC. Asked to describe where America is headed in the next year, more than two-thirds used negative words and phrases, downhill, wrong track, disaster, hard times, and uncertain. It's both sides of the aisle, folks. This isn't just one-sided. Full 71% of Americans say the nation is on the wrong track. We are in the longest sustained period of a wrong track number that high in the history of our poll. It's nearly been two and a half years of this sustained pessimism. It's longer than the 2008 financial crisis. Mr. President, what is your message? What is your message to Leader McCarthy? To Speaker McCarthy, sorry, sir. What will be your message? Show me your budget. I'll show you mine. Do you have any plans? And that was some of the uh, sounds of the weekend from some of our favorite former House Intelligence Committee members. Oh! Adam Schiff, mm. Elon Omar, yeah. and Eric Swalwell. Ugh. Yeah, we It's also... like the three musketeers of horrendousness. Yeah. Well, it, it was funny to see them all sit there and then, you know, uh, Dana Bash on CNN actually asked them, like, <laughs> she, she, Adam Schiff, like, okay, so some of the information that you told... No, but really. ...to us <laughs> turned out to be a lie. And he's like, uh, well... Um, I, I, well, I thought. <laughs> She's like, no, moving on. No, I'm pretty sure you didn't yeah. think that was, that was the issue. Elon Omar, so it's it's fairly apparent that you hate Jews. Uh, you've, made, you've made a lot of comments on, on that, you know, people we don't even consider it are anti-Semitic. And she's like, well, I had no idea that there was a, a direct correlation between Jewish people and money. Like, so I would just make jokes about it. Uh, moving on. Eric Swallow. Really? So you banged Fang Fang. And then he's like, well, uh, you know, the FBI will tell you. Yeah, Kevin McCarthy told us what well, the FBI told him. for her is actually bang, bang. Yeah. She should have just fu- swallow real quick follow-up. Can you get a security clearance? Are you saying she swallows? Next question. <laughs> <laughs> and then Joe Biden uh, in regards to the budget battle, which, you know, as both of the congressmen who were on the show today uh, talked about, this is going to be a big one, uh, a big line in the sand and, and a measuring stick for House Republicans to see how – strong that slim majority can be uh both gave resounding good grades for kevin mccarthy out of the block which i mm. don't disagree with them yeah. on and, and we'll, we'll hear from him in a second he he was uh you know holding the line throughout the weekend as well so you got to figure he's like i mean that was a close shave to some extent mm-hmm. i mean he knew he was gonna make it because he fucking moved into the office but at the same time <laughs> bought everybody five guys yeah it's like hey everybody wants some pizzas and some hamburgers no but like you guys want to he, he knows he knows that he had to concede a lot, which is probably a little bit grounding for him because now he has to actually toe the line and and be the person that he's supposed to be, not just what he wants to get paid for. Yeah, not a you, opportunist. You you don't want it. Yeah, well that's yeah. that's also true, Alan. But you don't want McCarthy to get into a situation to where it's like every time he goes and sits down with a, well air quoting a journalist now and <laughs> has to discuss the you know. The, the House agenda, he's like, well, you made these con- concessions, Kevin, but it doesn't seem like you're following up on them. And a lot of your constituents are saying the same thing. Can you please explain? Like, he doesn't want to get into that situation right now. Mm-hmm. So everything regarding, like, committee assignments to new House rules, who's sitting where, and George Santos, Kevin McCarthy, 
has to this point held the line. Uh, we're going to, you know, just montage it a little bit in continuance with, with the rest of our news here. It, it was a slowish news weekend. And in regards to, you know, uh, just some of the stuff that's going on, we are going to start seeing, well, we've had some developments actually in the, in the Joe Biden document scandal, you know, this narrative has continued to change. I think one of the biggest ones, uh, with it now is kind of like two pronged. How much access did Hunter Biden have to these materials and how much did they uh, use them in their influence peddling scheme? Hope you guys did your homework. And then on the other side, I think it's like between the National Archives and the DOJ in regards to the other people who are getting roped into this. And believe me, as people on on the Republican side are going to continue to make this a big deal in regards to Joe Biden, they are going to find other people who are more likable than either Joe Biden or Donald Trump on a national level who are former congressmen, former presidents who have stuff like this as well. They're just going to kind of try to water down the importance of the uh, president's opportunity or or privilege to declassify documents, which he deems are undeclassifiable. Also, for a lot of people I've seen, there's the fact checkers going on out there. I actually got fact checked on, on, I believe it was Instagram for, it was like the meme was all the different bricks, like the human verification thing. And it's like, please select the the blocks of people who could declassify documents. And it was like one of them was Donald Trump, one of them was Joe Biden, the other one was Hillary Clinton. <laughs> so they actually said it's missing context. And what the context is, and I just want our listenership to understand, Joe Biden did have the ability to declassify certain documents uh, in his position as vice president. But those- what, like gas station receipts? <laughs> gas board receipts? <laughs> But they would only what you did there. They would only be documents that Joe Biden himself deemed need to be classified. So he Oh, could, he, so so he says this is classified and then later on he just goes, "Yeah, just you know kidding. what? Uh the thing I, I, I uh, So he can't declassify any documents as vice president from any other agency or entity or even that from the president. Yeah. As the vice president. Only something that he classified himself right. personally, right. that he used his big rubber stamp or whatever he uses. Listen here, Jack. Crayon. This list of kids that I sniffed last year is classified. <laughs> exactly. But uh, we, we, we classified did, Easter basket. We did see some of the big guns out this weekend. I already mentioned uh, Speaker of the House McCarthy. Also, James Comer and Jim Jordan were doing the wrong. Jim, jo- Jim Jordan sat down with... Man, crying Chuck Todd on Meet the Fake Press. And they actually got into a pretty heated debate on the difference between the way Joe Biden's been been handled with kid gloves in regards to this document scandal and, and what happened with the uh, 45th president of the United States. Let's hear their exchange. Maybe you keep talking about, hey, Ray, but you keep talking about this raid uh, on, on Donald Trump. The amount of time, there was nine months between the initial action that the archives made for a request of documents before they even turned it over to the Justice Department. The subpoena was issued 60 days before they actually uh, executed the subpoena. And more importantly, the only time the public found out about it is because Donald Trump told the public about it. This was not some sort of, the you painted as a picture of the FBI did this, this, and this within hours of each other, when it was actually a year and a half of Donald Trump Jim not Peter, complying you- with any of the requests from National Archives. A year and a half. This is not some sort of... Uh, proof that but, somehow that they've Chuck, weaponized and Chuck, playing politics over here. They raided 
They raided Trump's home. They haven't raided Biden's home. Because they- Biden didn't defy a subpoena, Congressman. He <laughs> defied a subpoena. By the way, he had 60 days to they comply with Trump's- the subpoena before they actually executed President the Trump had documents locked in a room with Secret Service protecting them. Uh, President Biden had documents in his garage and in a think tank that was funded by the Chinese. I think there's a difference. President Trump was the only guy who was actually right. president. Right. The, I mean, you talk about that. You're worried about the Chinese and, and, and Hunter no, Biden. I'm just saying, are you worried about difference. the Chinese and Donald Trump? They took Trump? pictures. They oh, took God. pictures of. Are you at all worried about that? No, Jerry, I, I'm not. But they took pictures of of the documents at Trump's house. They took no pictures of documents. In fact, it's not just me who would like to know what went on here. Senator Warner said it last I, week. He would like to get a briefing. He wants to see the documents. No and guess what? The FBI the issue, is saying no, but they took pictures the issue of the folders is not whether, in Trump's home. The issue is not whether Joe Bi- what Joe Biden did. Uh, no, the issue, is, the issue is equal why treatment is it, under the law. That's the issue. No, the equal issue is treatment under the law. You do not seem to ever see the same conspiratorial problems when it's a Republican. <laughs> what? Huh? Oh, boy. Yeah, what do you guys think of uh, that back and forth? Noah was pretty <laughs> light on the garrison button there, which is good because you got to hear them arguing like two little schoolgirls. But the well, fact I'm worried I'm going to wear the button out. But the fact of the matter is, is that... Um, you know, there, there is a two-tier justice system, and there are two standards of, of the way they're working with Republicans and Democrats. You know, Chuck Todd's crying, saying how it's like, oh, but every time Donald Trump comes up, it's like the biggest scandal in the history of everything, and, and Jim Jordan's trying to get the point across. That's because every time something happens with a Democrat, you guys are trying to minimize it down to, like, it's not even a problem. And that's when he gets into, but he had 60 days, and he's working with the DOJ. It, it was also released last week that, you know, as these congressional oversight committees are getting ready to kick off, and they really want to look into all this stuff, you know, because... Joe Biden's connections and his business dealings with uh, him, his son, his brother, and other entities that are connected are probably going to be a highlighted concern there. The FBI and DOJ basically said, like, go fuck yourself. We're not we're not working with you guys. We're not showing you anything, especially in regards to this document scandal. I know House Republicans want to see, like, okay, just so we could get, like, maybe this narrative out of the news cycle. How about this? Why don't you show us like, or at least tell us the context or what some of these documents you're finding in Joe Biden's private residences and former think tanks and stuff like that. So maybe we could just say, okay, you know, it's not really, stop saying it's connected to Burisma. Stop saying it's connected to Russia and China and all that stuff, because, you know, we're looking in a different direction. We're looking at why it was there, not like the context of it now, but they said, you want to know what? No. Because you guys are going to leak stuff on the special counsel and try to, like, delegitimize the fact that the one for Joe Biden is just as good as the one for Donald Trump. And we all know that that's not the case. Just sounds like a lot of a lot a lot of uh, weaponization and hiding of of and, and protecting of people mm-hmm. all over the place. Like, uh, how does the DOJ just can the DOJ do that? Just decide, yeah, we're not working with 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 congressional committees or anything else who, who, who are looking, you know, to investigate certain things. Like, can they do that? That doesn't seem like checks and balances are working here. Well, I, I don't know. I guess we'll have to see how much of the, uh, the subpoena process they can exhaust and, and, and where that goes from here. Then you would have, you know, Merrick Garland up uh, every time he made some kind of appearance saying, like, why aren't you working with Republicans? Why aren't you being transparent? I don't even know. Like, if he refuses, can they just go and, like, put him up for impeachment for not adhering to, you know, transparent um, things in regards to his job. Can the Supreme Court get involved? It's a good point. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just at the you know, really infancy of these investigations. And uh, the Joe Biden document scandal is a continuously developing story. Um, 
James Comer sat down with uh, CNN State of the Fake Union on Sunday, and uh, you know they were talking about this double standard as well. Let's kind of hear him and and tie the Hunter Biden narrative into it as well. What's different with Joe Biden is we're investigating the Biden family for influence peddling. We have uh, a strong suspicion that people around Joe Biden, mainly in his family, uh, have been peddling access to the Biden family with our adversaries around the world. When we find out that they have multiple classified documents scattered throughout multiple uh, residences and office buildings across the East Coast, then this raises a, a huge red flag for us. We want to make sure that those documents uh, in the possession of, of Joe Biden weren't somehow sent to our adversaries and, and didn't somehow compromise our national security. But, but you've also talked about how you worried about the same situation with the Trump family. Trump had 300 plus documents at Mar-a-Lago. Why, why don't you have that same concern? I mean, people, there are visitors going in and out of Mar-a-Lago from different countries, including China. There's been a Chinese spy who was arrested at Mar-a-Lago and, and it was in an unsecure location at Mar-a-Lago. So would you apply that same concern even Mar a Lardo? the board marlardo if someone can show me evidence that uh, there was influence peddling with those classified documents uh, that were in the possession of, of president trump then uh, we would certainly but, expand but do that, you that have chinese evidence? spy was in marlargo but do you have evidence you know, where were the documents that were in these empty top secret files that were found at marlardo from biden sorry, do you man. have evidence but do you have evidence of the classified document influence peddling from Biden? It sounds like you don't. You're looking into it, but why wouldn't you look into it in the same way? We are looking into it, but we have evidence that the Biden family has been uh, very cozy with uh, people from the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Mm, we yep. have evidence that Hunter Biden was receiving uh, payments uh, that were that were linked directly to the Chinese Communist Party through those Chinese energy companies. We're very concerned about all the but money. How that, is that connected uh, to Biden classified documents? And Ukraine. Well, we don't know. We want to look. We see there's one right. email that's been identified that is suspicious that we want to look into. We want to make sure that there's one email that was on Hunter Biden's laptop wasn't one of the of the classified documents. So I think there's ample reason to be concerned. And the whole time that clip is playing there, you see uh, on the Chiron says House Republicans have and in quotes, no interest <laughs> in investigating Donald Trump's ties to China. So now it's China now, too. Wait, Donald just... Trump has ties to China? Oh, boy. China, Russia, everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere. You're going to find out. Donald that. Trump is Fang Fang. <laughs> Ew. Oh, my God. <laughs> Eric Swallow was banging Trump. I think Donald... Dressed as Fang Fang? Just a different wig? No, he what? doesn't have a wig. <laughs> you, ever, you think Donald Trump ever uh, maybe... By proxy voting, sat on the board of a Ukrainian energy company. <laughs> That'll be the next one. Burisma. Mm. But, but he had bank accounts in China as an, as an American real estate tycoon. Yeah. Oh. Weird. Well, he did want to build a Trump Tower in Moscow, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it just came across the wire now. Did he put the little squiggly things on the roof or no? Of course. Oh, yeah. Orange, orange ones. Oh, yeah. I heard they make the best taco bowls there. <laughs> he loves Hispanics. Cinco de Mayo. That picture's amazing. It's the best. <laughs> Ohio Senator J.D. Vance has just officially endorsed Donald Trump for president in 2024. So oh, dang. Chalk up another one. Mm. And uh, at the same time, I, me and Alan were, were just talking before he jumped in with us. Uh, Jim Banks is looking to... Uh, have something made public in regards to uh, some information that's being withheld by the Biden White House. What'd you hear, Alan? 
Yeah, Jim Banks, he's uh, pressing uh, the Biden regime to release the classified Swalwell Fang Fang intelligence report, mm. intelligence report, because listen, if, if there's nothing for the bad in the report, why not give it to the appropriate committees in Congress and, and or make it public just to, hey, listen, there's nothing here. The nature of the relationship between Eric Swalwell and the Chinese spy Fang Fang that he was doing the nasty with all is good. She wasn't really a spy. And. This is what the FBI has to say in the intelligence report. I think uh, you think it's going to be like a PG-13 version or like the NC-17 version. <laughs> it's going to be like the uh, the fake PP tapes, <laughs> but you, it's going to be real. But yeah, but do you think Swalwell like to get pegged and stuff? Like that? Oh, oh absolutely! I'm I'm picturing ball gags, oh, zipper, yeah, yeah. cat and nine tails, yeah, 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 the bondage mask with the zipper mouth. He <laughs> left you a long time. Yes. Well, one of the other things that uh, you I actually know, just Googled the uh, Swalwell Fang Fang hmm. and a bunch of uh, happy photos show up. Oh, God. No, this is a, this is family friendly program. I mean, he looks like he might be on the spectrum. Hmm. He sure talks like it sometimes. <laughs> He's the lady boy. I knew it. Yeah. So Senate Republicans, in addition to uh, the meeting that Kevin McCarthy is set to have with Joe Biden uh, later this week. In regards to the debt ceiling battle, uh, came out strong on Friday to talk about well Joe Biden's bad stance on it right now, which you know we we've heard him say that I'm not willing to negotiate with Republicans. Period. All the way down to you know the clip we played you earlier in the segment, which Joe Biden stated like, "Tell Kevin McCarthy to show me his budget, and I'll show him mine." It's, it's not weird. Wait, what? Yeah, it's it's not weird. Show me the back of the gymnasium. <laughs> I'm gonna sniff it. Let me sniff your budget. Senator Rand Paul wasn't having it and uh, took to the podium with Ted Cruz on Friday. Let's hear them. President Biden says he won't negotiate over raising the debt ceiling. I have news for him. He absolutely will negotiate. Conservatives will not vote to raise the debt ceiling. The majority in the House, Republican majority in the House, will not vote to raise the debt ceiling without significant budget reform. The greatest threat to our country is and the greatest threat to our national security is the debt. One of the great things about where we are now, though, is it really doesn't take as much as you would think to actually balance the budget. In Europe, over half of the countries balance their annual budget. We think of Europe, of Germany and Sweden, of having these large governments, and they do, but they're actually fiscally responsible in the sense that they spend what comes in. We could do it in our country. If we were to have a $100 billion cut, which would still have us spending way more than we spent before COVID, a $100 billion cut in free spending, we would balance our budget in just four years. This is amazing. We have an opportunity here. It could be done, but it would take compromise between both parties. Republicans would have to give up the sacred cow that says we will never touch a dollar in military, mm. and the Democrats would have to give up the sacred cow that they will never touch a dollar in welfare. Everything would have to be looked across the board. No one has a sacred area that would be immune. And when you make the cuts across the board, they aren't as big as you'd actually think they would be. It's a responsible thing to do. But President Biden needs to know, absolutely, he will negotiate. And it's better to start now. Which is a good point there. I mean, between military spending and then welfare, uh, we did hear, uh, you know, if you saw Kevin McCarthy's piece over the weekend, uh, he did what he was pressed on this heavily. And when they got into the military spending, he's like, you want to know what he's like, I get what you're trying to like pin me on. But the fact of the matter is, is that there has to be some wasteful spending in there. And he's referring to like the $10,000 pens and stuff that Noah's pointed out so frequently on the show over the course of 
you know, are, are, are bringing a lot of the appropriation hearings to you guys. I want a $10,000 pen. Or $50,000 <laughs> toilet. Well, I mean, yeah. that's how much your, not how much your toilet cost? No. I don't think so. <laughs> Mine was cheaper than that. We have a lot of $175,000 a year toilets walking around the Capitol. So. Oh. Are you talking about Swalwell? <laughs> or just the stuff that comes out of Elon Omar's mouth? Asshole. There you go. Senator Ted Cruz was up next. He was talking about uh, the, the same topic and and what needs to happen with Joe Biden and his bad negotiation tactics. Let's hear the senator from Texas. Joe Biden's position is facially unreasonable and ridiculous. Here's Joe Biden's position. I refuse to negotiate anything. Hmm. That's what he's telling you. Seems like a good business model. I don't care that there's a Republican majority. I don't care that we're bankrupting the country. I don't care that there's inflation ravaging this country. I, Joe Biden, will negotiate nothing to hell with you. Let's default. That's Joe Biden's position. And on its face, it is objectively unreasonable. Mm -hmm. The reason he can take that objectively unreasonable position is because he believes the press will protect him. He believes that in your coverage, you won't talk about how it's objectively unreasonable for the president to say, I don't care what the Congress says. My answer is Hell no. <laughs> He's counting on you for that. That's unreasonable. It's irresponsible. And we're here to encourage the members of the House and the members of the Senate to hold the line and get serious about fixing this problem. And it's a problem that's going to be uh, an ever-growing one until we start to see how the negotiations are going to start. I think this is a what do you, we're going to, I mean, obviously we can only ask you to, but this is a huge litmus test that Kevin McCarthy's come out. He said the right things. He's followed through on a lot of his, you know, backroom promises in regards to committee assignments and which way in investigatory committees are going to go as, as the 118th Congress got kicked off here. But the fact of the matter is this is the biggest item that he's probably going to have to deal with besides budget appropriations uh, for this entire year, because it, I mean, not reaching a, a a plausible solution equals a government shutdown. And, and that doesn't help anybody. And, and reflectively, it makes the economy worse because it kind of scares everyone. Like if our government's shutting down, that must mean everything's shutting down. Oh, did you say climate lockdowns? Now, how many times has the government shut down in the last like several years? I mean, that, one, that one big one, right? For for the most notable, right? Because that was the longest in... That was over the, a winter, right? A few years ago? Yeah, that, I mean, that was like the longest one in quite a while, right? Was that the winter of death and despair? Or was that a different winter? It was before that winter. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> death and despair. No, but I mean, so the government shutdown, like, while it is very scary, sometimes is necessary, but it also just gives everybody the fucking dirt to throw in each other's faces about, like, oh, you don't care about the country because you're going to allow the government to shut down. It's just... Roles reversed, the, the other team would be saying the exact same thing about the other if they had something heavy enough to be hefting in that direction. It's just, it's just, it's laughable, the shit that, like, the government's just like, well, we can use this to our advantage to say this and make it seem like you guys are bad. But really, we don't really give a shit either way. See, that's all they do on so many different levels. It's just the optics, you know, what can we pull out to make this one look bad? What can we pull out to make them look bad? I mean, it's... it's And they don't care about the end result. It, it doesn't matter to them. I mean, is, well, is this going to help us win or is this going to make them look bad? It doesn't really matter. It, well, it makes them look bad? Okay, we'll do that. 
Yeah, it's just do. about winning and, and keeping the power and, and both sides do it. I mean, they don't care what collateral damage they leave in the in the in the in the path. Oh, yeah. No, our side's just just as guilty with a lot of that shit, too. So oh. It's just government in general, politics, swampness. I'm, I'm tired of calling them leaders. I'm like, are, we're leaders. Like, we're, we're the fucking leaders. We the people. We put these people in, in some sort of You say power. that. You say that. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. It's sickening. I was thinking about that this morning. It'd be nice if it went back to that being the way, like, you know, our elected officials were actually elected (laughs) by us. Yeah, this is true, too. And that right. And then they went ahead and did the uh, The stuff we want, the representing when they get there. Yeah. Well, that's not ever the case because, you know, we've talked about it quite a bit on the show today. We saw that the Biden administration extended the COVID public health emergency through May. Joe Biden made some weird comments today saying like, hey, listen, Jack, I'm not ending the COVID mandate. I'm going to end it when the Supreme Court ends it. I don't even know what that means. Yeah, they can't give up any of the COVID emergency bullshit because then these governors, like fucking Newsom, will have to give up their emergency powers and they won't be able to just fucking do whatever they want. Yeah, and uh, at, at the same time, we, we did see, I was talking with Noah on it, uh, we, they had a vote on the House floor today. The entire Democrat side of the House all 212 members voted to not open the debate on permanently ending the COVID emergency public health not. standard. Yeah, man, right. you're crushing it today. I actually thought when you went in on your last point that Vladimir Zeminsky was coming in on it because you're like, listen here. <laughs> I, forgot cookie about, I forgot about the cookies. We got some good cookie monster responses in our uh, show from last week. Speaker McCarthy, like I did mention, did jump on a – State of the fake nation. I don't know why he does this. Mm. Yeah. And uh, he was talking about, you know, all this stuff regards. And and the biggest thing when you talk about raising the debt ceiling and when you talk about the current state of the economy, it's just because of the wasteful spending. You know, this lady tries to point out in this clip we're going to play right now, stuff that went back to the pandemic. But the fact of the matter of it, we've seen so much uh, that's come down in wasteful spending since the start of the Biden regime. Let's hear the Speaker of the House continue the spending that has brought this inflation that has brought our economic problems we've got to get our spending under control okay just fact check though 25 percent of the debt was incurred during the last four years of the trump presidency oh. i mean this is cumulative debt yeah, for we, many uh, many years ex- well over a short uh, this time period but you've yep. also found that you had a pandemic and right. as that pandemic comes down those programs leave i've watched the president say he cut it no it is spending 500 billion more than what mm-hmm. was projected they have spent more and we've got to stop the waste and, and that's the fact of the matter it's it's when you stop the wasteful spending you'll start to see the economy get better you'll start to see the national debt go down but and the only thing i've noticed about the pandemic ending is all the bullshit regulations and all the bullshit stuff that like businesses, for instance, are doing that haven't gone away just because like, Hey, you know what? Shit. That was way easier not to do that anymore. Like, Oh, close the dressing rooms at at the, at the store. And Hey, you guess, guess what? You guys can't sit here anymore because now we don't have to mop the floors and pay somebody to do that. No cashiers, no cashiers. We'll get the robots. Those robot dogs will come to your table. Hmm. I don't like the robot dogs. No, I really don't like the robot dogs. I actually watched the War of the Worlds. Like, it, but I, I know where all the important stuff is. Yeah, inside them. Mm. <laughs> and there it is. We found our movie clip of the day, and so close to the end of the show as well. And as I've already teased in our last audio clip of the day, you know, we've talked about this debate that went on on the House floor. I just have to point out that Missouri Representative Sheila Jackson Lee uh, was quick to reference five hundred people a day still die from COVID. 
asshole. Yes, she is. And uh, Joe Biden joined uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer at some, I don't know, train tunnel kickoff uh, today talking about Joe Biden making up his Amtrak story that after he got... I was a train conductor for 70 years. After he got his... Back before I was on the dinosaurs. (laughs) The trains. The trains go beep, beep in the snow. And and the, the smoke, it goes up my legs and my hair. And I rub the smoke down and... And I love little kids jumping in my train smokestack. Was Corn Pop there? <laughs> oh, man. He, he lied about his story again, saying that after he, I think, rode his millionth mile, he was essentially given the keys to Amtrak. I'm, I'm just going to, like, paraphrase this show, but not to the train or to the tunnel, or train, to, to Amtrak, to what? which he had, I don't know. That's, <laughs> wasn't, wasn't that that movie where the guy was, like, the traveling salesman and he got the super mileage card and... Planes, trains, and automobiles? No, that was a different one. I know, that's a good one, though. Let's hear just how some of our Democrat counterparts up in the Beltway are uh, caring about you. Now, you can use whatever train metaphor you want, anyone you want, but get on the Joe Biden Express now because we are not stopping. Oh, 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 oh. For four years. Oh. That's enough of that. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Pure cringe. <laughs> they, they just. N- Joe Biden train. <laughs> Alan, you on the Joe Biden Express? The Joe Biden Express. I mean, I. I can't imagine what that would look like. Oh, I, I think can. it. I think it ends at a rest home. Does it run on chalky chalky chip? No, it sure doesn't. It just. It's just one of those old school trains. Just the the track ends, and it's just that's it. Into the no, that's that was Back to the Future. Into the mountainside, back to the future. <laughs> well, well, that's just the thing. It, it's, it's. They have to use. That's like, I don't say open sesame. I say open Biden. That's oh, like another one of those fuck, awful geez. ones. Open Biden. I just, I don't say open Biden. Do you think Nancy oh, Pelosi was oh, present in the? Topless. Do you think she was present <laughs> in the exorcism of her house? <laughs> How do we not they, talk more about that? That, that <sighs> is not exercising a news story. Her. Just, I know just, it's not a news story, but like. The memes were great. If it's true, I mean, it is true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll exercise your demons. Listen, like we said, it was a slow news weekend, but here we are at the end of another great show. We brought you a, a lot of insight from inside the Beltway. We sat down with a uh, former surrogate of, of Donald Trump's to talk about the getting kicked off church-style commission into the weaponization of the federal government and, and and did kind of frame everything that's going on in addition to President Trump taking off his 2024 presidential campaign officially uh, for you guys today on the show. Coming in hot out of the weekend. What do you think, Noah? Outstanding. Hot. Super hot on the gram. Oh. A little homage to our good friend Boris there. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear the now over 200 other editions of the Steak and Breakfast podcast, you can find us across every downloadable podcasting platform. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, iHeartRadio, FM Player, Podaddict, Google Podcasts. Subscribe to the show and rate it. Leave a review. And don't forget to download, listen, like, follow, and share Steak for Breakfast content. Show creds go to all of our amazing guests today. We had Congressman Eli Crane and Max Miller joining us. In addition to that, former special assistant to the 45th president of the United States, Theo Wald was on with us to give a little commentary. Thank you all for taking times out of your busy schedules to come make steaks great again. Speaking of which, 
go and throw in your hard-earned cash at some of our partners because you're going to help make small American businesses great again when you do, namely my pillow. Listen, the guy's got a ton of products. You love the coffee. You like all the stuff Lindell's got going on down there. The Air Lindells are some of my favorites. The slippers. I like the robe. My dogs love the dog bed. But he announced yesterday that the My Pillow version 2.0 is about to launch. How? How's? How are you going to improve on a pillow? Oh, if someone could do it, <laughs> yeah, Mike, Mike Lindell. Exactly. And you enter promo code Stake here. You're going to enjoy tons of savings. Listen, if you want to know what's going on with the My Pillow 2.0, you enter promo code Stake. You buy one get one free. Where can you beat that? Bogo? MyPillow.com yeah, forward yeah. slash steak for anything sleep related. If you want the coffee, MyStore.com forward slash steak. Or you could always talk to a qualified pillow representative. 1-800-658-8045. The top tier of ear gear and the best damn headphones that I've ever owned can only be found at Odyssey. If you're in the studio doing some music, maybe a podcast, you want to be serious, get those ear needs taken care of and done upright. Make the investment. Odyssey.com is the website. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram as well. Man rubs. Having some man rub chicken tonight. Nice. As is the usual on Tuesdays. Um, listen, they are delicious. They have a, a variety of flavors, some a little spicy. No one enjoys it, and so do I. Manrubs.com is the website. They're on Facebook and Instagram as well. My Patriot Cigars, if you want to mix a little business with pleasure. They've got great deals going on down there. If you enter promo code STAKE here, you're getting 15% off your total order. All orders over 100 bucks, free shipping, and a $10 e-gift card is included with every purchase. MyPatriotCigars.com, a premium smoke for freedom-loving patriots. And Farmer Bill's Beef Jerky. You enter promo code here, you're getting $5 off your total order. You order a 12-pack of jerky, you're getting free shipping. FarmerBill'sProvisions.com is the website. Check them out as our newest partner and uh, great friend of the show. What a perfect transition. Mm. <laughs> Upcoming shows, we're coming back on Friday. One of our favorite segments of the month. We'll have Cash Patel in here. Congressman out of Georgia, House Representative Mike Collins will be here. So will Congressman out of California, House Representative Kevin Kiley. And we'll talk a little tech. I know Noah wants to talk about that uh, chat AI stuff, the, mm. the new paper writer AI that's going on with none other than the Heritage Foundation's Jake Denton. We will have Matt uh, Timurand and Catalina Stubbe on next Tuesday so far. Uh and we're going to have John Solomon and Gavin Wax here on the 10th. Christina Bob and Josh Hammer will be joining us on Valentine's Day so far. And I'm still getting waiting for some word back on the rest of the month for February. But don't worry, we're going to be bringing you our usual slate of great guests as well. Friends of the Week, our true social Twitch streamer crew, always representing and sharing. Beastman420, Siberian Kitten. Some call me Tim79 was sharing during the show. I haven't seen what it was yet, but I got my notifications. We always Mr. Garrison Ghost Hammer. Oh! We love Nightwing and Magaspud. You were in there this week as well. Spoopy, I saw you creeping. You're always sharing at like 3 o'clock in the morning. And we can't forget William S. In addition to them, some of the meme team, Namrock, Namrock, Hispanics for DeSantis, Madam America, Mostly Peaceful Memes, My Willow Memes. Johnny Maga was sharing throughout the weekend. You know what? I'm going to say it. Grand Old Memes, I know you listen to the show. We were in each other's DMs yesterday. You made the Mike Lindell meme for the MyPillow 2.0. You need to release it. (laughs) I want to see it. It's great. Thanks to remember between now and Friday. Number one, do your own research. Number two, start a podcast. Absolutely. You're welcome. Number three, let's start talking about American greatness again. We'll start to hear it on more of a regular basis as Donald Trump is hitting the campaign season in full swing. He just put out a video today that said, don't worry, the, I'm quoting now, gigantic rallies, which are so much fun, are coming soon. And last but certainly not least, let's see what happens 
This is episode 209 of the Steak for Breakfast podcast, and we'll be back 210 on Friday. Cash Patel, Mike Collins, Kevin Kiley, and Jake Denton. On behalf of the pod team and Antoinette, who called in sick today, I'm Ron. Noah. Later. Alan Jacoby was a great guest host as usual. Thanks for listening, guys, and take care. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors is debating such a policy. KTVU crime reporter Henry Lee has the story. San Francisco police asking for approval by the Board of Supervisors to use robots like this one as a potential deadly force option. That means military-grade machines operated by trained officers could potentially kill suspects during critical incidents. You know, there's been a lot of talk about RoboCop or, you know, which I think sets, you know, a whole lot of minds going to a whole lot of different places, but this is, this is not that.